Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, this is session 34. Um, kind of um, kind of amazing, actually, to reflect upon the pace that we're currently running right now. I was realizing at the current pace, we're likely to take somewhere around 12 years to finish the entire Lord of the Rings, but it's all good. Um, all right, so welcome everybody. I have uh, a, a really big announcement uh, this week, uh, which is super cool. This weekend, this Saturday, is our webathon. This is the, the, the our, our fundraising campaign is coming to an end this Saturday, and I'm going to be doing. We're going to be doing our our, our annual webathon. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be really cool. So the webathon, it's an all day, huge, like celebration of geekery and everything that Signum University does. I'm going to start at noon and I'm going to go through after midnight. Um, I doubt I'll end any time before like one in the morning. So it's going to be great fun. We do, um, lots and lots of, uh, of, of different things. We, I do sort of like bits from every kind of programming we do. We're going to have, uh, there are going to be three major sessions, so uh, like three major big teaching sessions, and then a bunch of smaller uh, fun events and things. So the big things we're going to do, uh, I'm going to do one. I'm going to do a special Lotro stream, uh, which is going to be taking Wigan to Isengard. So Wigan has finished Helm's Deep, and I would like to. I really want to see the ants attacking Isengard. That's been one of the things I've been looking forward to in Lotro for a while. Uh, so I'm hoping to get Wigan uh, to Isengard and hopefully close to the Paths of the Dead. Um, so I'm going to be doing that, but I'm going to be doing that at the end. That's going to be that's that's how I'm going to be finishing uh, the our marathon broadcast on Saturday. So that'll probably start about 10 p.m. or so on Saturday. Um, on in the middle of the day, I'm going to be doing a special one-shot Mythgard Academy session. And in my special one-shot Mythgard Academy session, I'm going to be doing one or two, maybe even two episodes of Star Trek. So I've been watching Star Trek. Um, I've been going through and doing Star Trek from um, uh, from beginning to end. Uh, whoop, sorry, getting some uh, getting some mic static there. Okay, I think we're good. Um, anyway, so I've been doing Star Trek from one end to the next, uh, and I'm, I'm almost to the end of my uh, of my exhaustive watching of Star Trek. Uh, so I've been, you know, several people have been uh, asking me to do. Uh, Star Trek stuff. So I'm going to do a Star Trek episode right now. If you go to my social media, my Twitter or my Facebook, uh, I'm taking nominations for favorite episodes uh, that you'd like to hear me talk about. Uh, and um, I'm doing, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to post a finalist list tomorrow uh, for people to, uh, uh, to vote on so that uh, we can uh, make a decision and we'll see what we're going to do by popular demand uh, on Saturday. Tungo, I absolutely watched the original series first. Yeah, absolutely. I watched. Now, I, I haven't done absolutely everything. Um, I should specify. I started with the original series, and then the Next Generation, and then Deep Space Nine and Voyager. I've been watching alternating seasons in chronological order, and I've also been doing the films interspersed in chronological order throughout. So that's been my that's been my Star Trek journey. I haven't checked out Discovery yet, Lincoln. Um, nor have I watched Enterprise. Um, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get to that one either. Um, anyway, so, uh, so we have nominations for Star Trek episodes. Hope you'll join me for that. That'll be in the middle of the day, uh, like, uh, 6, 6.30 PM is, is, uh, when that episode is scheduled. But, but 
I am also going to do a special episode just for you guys. So I was thinking, I was like, okay, I want to do a special session of exploring the Lord of the Rings for the Webathon, but what do we do? I'm like, oh, wait, I know. Let's do like another three paragraphs of chapter seven. But that didn't seem, you know, uh, really like different. So I have, um, um, so I, I, I had a, I, I had a brainwave, right? I, I was like, what, what kind of, you know, special extra bonus session could we have? That would help to supplement exploring the Lord of the Rings and where we are right now. And then I realized the adventures of Tom Bombadil. So we've been talking about Tom Bombadil for like two months now, and I have probably referred to the original adventures of Tom Bombadil poem about a hundred times in the last two months. Um, but I know a lot of you are not familiar with it. So we're going to, we're going to do a special session. I'm going to do a whole session um, where I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do both. The poems are long, so, you know, I'm not sure I'll get through both of them. But I'm going to try to do both, um, both the original uh, 1934 Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem and uh, the sequel poem that he wrote in the 1960s when he was getting together the volume of poetry, which he titled The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, uh, which is Bombadil Goes Boating. So it's like a, a sequel, uh, a Tom Bombadil poem that he wrote after The Lord of the Rings. So it's really neat having looked as closely as we have at the Tom Bombadil of the Fellowship of the Ring to look at Tom Bombadil pre-Fellowship of the Ring and also Tom Bombadil post-Fellowship of the Ring uh, in those two different poems uh, to see how we, uh, uh, to see how, how they come out, to see what Tolkien's doing with them. So we're going to be doing uh, a special session on those poems and that we're going to, I'm going to, we're going to be um, kicking off the whole webathon with that. Um, so I'm going to be starting the, our class discussion on the adventures of Tom Bombadil um, at like noon, like right away as we begin. So that's how we're going to start the webathon uh, on Saturday. So I hope that you guys will join me for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And yes, um, everybody, um, everybody who uh, has asked and is going to ask, yes, I'll, I'll, the webathon will all be recorded. Um, so if you miss it, you know, you won't, you, won't, you won't miss it forever. You can still watch the recording of it. But you are going to miss out on some of the live fun because throughout the webathon on Saturday, uh, we're going to be doing we're going to be doing live games. We're going to be doing live trivia contests. We're going to be doing uh, giveaways and prizes and things throughout the day. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be great fun. Uh, the the webathon is always a, a, a huge event um, and a really, really fun day. Um, so yeah, so how will how to join in live? Uh, the number one way. So I'm going to be broadcasting it on Twitch. So the number one thing is if you want to attend the webathon, the best thing to do is do just what you're doing right now. Um, it's going to be on the Twitch channel, and I'm going to be on Discord as well, just like I am here uh, with you guys here. Um, I'm going to be also using our regular uh, Netmoot, our regular go-to webinar uh, session that I, you know, have always done. As, you know, that Sigma always uses for uh, for its sessions. But there's limited seating in that, um, so I want to kind of spread that out. So, and let me whisper to those of you who are here tonight, y'all who attend exploring the Lord of the Rings on a weekly basis uh, and have figured out how to use Discord. Not everybody has figured out how to use, not all of our regulars have cracked the code of how to use Discord. So for those of you who are savvy for in using Discord, as you are every week, uh, I would particularly request, actually, that you use this mechanism uh, to attend the webathon, uh, because then it'll leave seats 
uh, in uh, the webinar session uh, for those who are less comfortable uh, with this alternative technology. So the Webathon Tarlonio starts at noon, noon on Saturday the 14th, starting at noon, going straight through until like one o'clock in the morning or whenever. Um, but our special adventures of Tom Bombadil session starts at noon right off. Um, and anyway, so yeah, so that's how you can attend. Uh, th there's a, there's an event page on signumuniversity.org for the webathon. You can find the link to the, to the webinar there, but again, you can just show up to the, to the Twitch page, uh, as well. And, uh, and you'll be able to watch it there, come to discord and we'll all be here and it'll be awesome. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, yeah, it's going to be great. So you, you could, you'll, you'll learn a lot more. You know, I know that you know for many of you, exploring the Lord of the Rings is the first thing from Signum and Mythgard that you've been involved in. It's a really cool way to hear from other people, see you know all the things that Signum is doing. I know that throughout you know these last few weeks, as we've been doing our fundraising campaign, and our fundraising campaign, of course, ends this week. Um, you know, this Saturday is the big celebratory finish. Um, you know, I've been been uh, asking everybody to consider donating to support what we're doing. One of the things the Webathon is designed to do to help you get a better sense of, well, what, what is it that you're supporting exactly? Not only uh, this course, but all the other things that we're doing. So to, to, get, a, to get a sense of, uh, and, and to, you know, to learn some stuff about the, the many cool things that Signum is doing and to hear from uh, you know, just some of the members of our community who, who are involved in this and really enjoying the things that we're doing. It's a really, really great opportunity, really fun day. So, all right. Um, so that's what's going on uh, on Saturday. Um, uh, I do want to, again, as I said, fundraising. You know, I do, I do want to mention, uh, you know, just to ask you one more time in tonight in tonight's class. Again, this is our last class during the fundraiser. So I'm not going to be taking a whole bunch of class time in the future uh, to talk about this. Uh, but I did, uh, you know, just want to, to ask if you haven't had a chance to consider donating uh, to support our programs. We do have a long ways to go in exploring Lord of the Rings, so we need to make sure that Signum and Mythgard keep going uh, for another decade or so, so that we can so that we can get through this uh, this awesome study that we started here together. Um, you know, remember our philosophy at Signum has always been to to you know commit ourselves to things, to give things away. Um, you know, make things that we have to sell as cheap as possible and to make everything else uh, free uh, wherever we possibly can. Uh, not just free to attend live, but free to download for everybody. For those of you who do any, um, you know, web broadcasting or web storage and stuff, you know that that's not free uh, to be able to, to allow people to be downloading your videos and everything uh, for free. But we, we you know, we're, we're committed to doing that. We really want our stuff to be available for everybody. It's a major part of our mission statement. Uh, at Sigmund University. So, um, uh, so again, if you if you if you haven't had a chance, please consider it signumuniversity.org slash donate. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I'd ask it to I'd ask you to think about if you can um, consider making a monthly donation. It's a really really great way to be a very substantial blessing uh, to Signum into supporting our program all the way through. Um, you know, a small monthly donation, five dollars, ten dollars. Um, you know, those, uh, those really add up in really significant ways. And so I, I would, uh, just encourage you to think about that. Um, but, uh, very good. <laughs> very good. Yeah. I see one of our people says that she set up a monthly donation donation. So something good comes of selling my soul to corporate America. That's right. That's not exactly what I would have said, but, yeah, but, but I, I, I agree. That's great. Um, uh, very good. Um, and I also wanted to remind you 
that we have our uh, uh, we have our our drawing uh, that's coming. So for all of you who have donated, uh, you know, towards exploring the Lord of the Rings, uh, we have uh, we have a, a prize drawing that we're going to do tonight in class. I'm going to do that drawing at the end of our book discussion and before we start our in-game field trip uh, tonight. And let me sp- I've I've kind of added a little bit because I like giving stuff away. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give away four. I'm going to do four, four drawings. Uh, the 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 third place prize and the, the 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 so the third prize and the fourth prize well, should do this in reverse order the fourth prize and the third prize are each going to be a free book with um uh with a special customized book plate in them and i told you you can choose one of the one of the books from the Mythgard academy list uh if you want to choose a another tolkien book that you don't have that's also totally cool um the second place uh this the second prize is going to be two books of your choice and the first prize is going to be one free book of your choice and access to one of Signum University's course archives. So that means you get access to all of the uh, the, the lectures from one of our courses. So if you want to you want to hear the lectures of some of the some of the awesome um, uh, uh, Tolkien scholars of all time, you can hear you know lectures from Tom Shippey, lectures from Verlin Flieger. Uh, lectures from Mike Drought. You can you can you know get if you want to get like my uh, Tolkien's poetry class where I go through and discuss Tolkien's entire short poetic corpus during that semester. That was a really fun class. Um, so that's gonna that plus a book is gonna be our 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 grand prize, which we'll draw at the end. So if you haven't made your donation yet, any donations made during our book discussion tonight will count towards that drawing uh, at the end. So okay, so that's what's gonna be happening. Uh, and, uh, again, thanks to everybody who has, uh, donated. Oh, oh yeah. And don't forget. So when you make a donation, if you make a donation in class tonight, don't forget, send an email to donate at signumu.org mentioning exploring the Lord of the Rings in the subject line. And that way you that's how you enter your name into the drawing. So, uh, donate at signumu.org, uh, and mention, uh, your donation to exploring the Lord of the Rings and we'll put you in the drawing. And again, the website to donate signumuniversity.org slash donate uh, will get you to our donation page. Um, so, all right. So we're going to do that uh, in the middle of class here today. Okay. All right. Very good. I'm, uh, there we go. Looking at a bunch of different things here today. Okay. Um, so let's, let's start. Fear and delight is the topic of class tonight. Uh, we're looking at, of course, the, um, uh, some of the the scary things that Tom Bombadil talks to them about, and they get a little freaked out, right? Uh, the hobbits do. Um, and then we get this very sudden shift in the scene, and I hope we'll get we'll get as far as the sudden shift in the scene uh, before the end of class tonight. Um, but um, okay, so uh, first there were two quick questions, two quick comments on the uh, uh, the discussion board. That I wanted to mention, um, and I thought were really cool. Uh, Fourth Dauntless Three, which, by the way, Fourth Dauntless is a pretty cool name. Um, why there should be three of them, I don't know. But anyway, um, I thought uh, I, I thought this was a really neat. This is about Frodo's dream, because uh, we can never really say too much about the dream sequences. Uh, he says, "I suspect I suspect that Frodo's possession of the ring, combined with his long familiarity with Gandalf and his fear for what what, what has happened to the wizard." has allowed Frodo to reach out and briefly touch Gandalf's mind, possibly aided by Gandalf's own mind reaching out and searching for Frodo. Here's what leads me to this conclusion. 
One, I absolutely agree with your interpretation that the sound of rushing wind and hoofbeats is shadow facts. I've been reading it that way ever since I became familiar enough with the text to remember that this dream came to Frodo after the events that he saw. That's awesome, Fourth Dauntless. It only, uh, that reading only occurred to me a couple weeks ago. Uh, two, given that Gandalf has already escaped and is on his way north, he will almost certainly be dwelling on the events of his escape, fearing for the damage that Saruman's treachery might do, and hoping against hope that he might reach Frodo before the Nazgul do. And three, this interpretation also allows us to understand why Frodo wakes up fearing Black Riders. It's because Gandalf fears Black Riders. Gandalf's fear has bled over into Frodo through the dream. This interpretation seems to make sense given the facts we have, but it makes me very uncomfortable because it also suggests that Frodo's connection to the ring is much stronger than we otherwise have reason to suspect. In fact, Galadriel later tells Frodo that he has not trained his mind to the domination of others, implying that he would be incapable of touching Gandalf's thoughts like this. Okay, really, really interesting idea, uh, Fourth Dauntless, and not one that I'd considered, so I really wanted to, to think about it here uh, for, uh, uh, for a minute. Um, Anyway, okay, so, um, oh, great. Hey, I see Fourth Dauntless is uh, with us here this evening. Great. Glad you're here live. Um, okay, so, first of all, again, this is a great concept because, of course, we do have several examples. We haven't yet, at this point in the, in the Lord of the Rings, but we certainly will, before the end, have several examples of this kind of remote, like, sort of semi-telepathic connection between people right? We know that this kind of connection is definitely possible. It's definitely a thing that happens. Um, could it be happening here? Um, that is, of course, one explanation of this whole, like, you know, current event stream phenomenon that I've been describing. Now, the fact that the fact that um, the current event stream is a phenomenon, right, um, is one of the things which makes me hesitate about this interpretation because we have lots of examples of when somebody is dreaming about something that's really happening. Okay, well, not lots of examples, but we have a couple examples of somebody dreaming about something that's happening, and it's not something that needs to be explained by this kind of actual sort of telepathic communication or whatever we want to call it. Um, it's, uh, so anyway, so that's, that's uh, it doesn't seem to be necessary to explain that, but, of course, you might counter that by saying, but this isn't exactly a current event stream, right? It's a recent event stream, but it's not, the time doesn't sync up. This is not, Gandalf isn't there um, when this is happening. So, um, you know, and yeah, so that seems, that's, uh, that I, you know, that would be a perfectly, um, a perfectly just um, counter uh, to that, I think. So, you know, there you go. Is the connection, and this is something that, uh, this is, isn't the whole post, this is something that Fourth Dauntless was thinking about elsewhere um, in the post as well. Uh, this seems to be correlated with rings in the sense that the majority of the, is that true? Is it all of the people who we see communicating telepathically like this are ring bearers, right? We see the three, right? We know that, you know, Galadriel does this, Um Gandalf is going to be communicating with Frodo, for instance, on uh, Amon Hen, right? Um, we we know we're going to, you know, we have that scene of uh, Gandalf, Galadriel, and Elrond, you know, sitting there in the camp in Dunland, right? Just silently, telepathically communicating with each other, you know, communing with each other before Galadriel departs to cross back over the Misty Mountains and go back home during many partings. Um, Everybody we see doing that does seem to have a ring, right? So the fact that, and Matt was just bringing this up as well, Frodo has the one ring, 
Gandalf is wearing one of the elven rings, so that would seem, you know, potentially anyway to uh, to suggest that it, that it, it could be a ring bearer thing, and would make more plausible this kind of connection uh, between uh, Frodo and Gandalf there. Um, uh, and Tony Mead points out very justly that Gandalf is associated with dreams anyway uh, from his time as a Lord in Valinor. Um, yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, now, so, so is that what's happening here? Maybe I'm, I'm inclined. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, the main reason I don't think so is uh, Fourth Dauntless is actually due to point two. Point two seems to me the biggest stretch of this whole thing. I, I, I certainly agree that it's possible. Um, and that it's conceivable that Frodo could be reaching out with his mind to, to, to touch Gandalf because he's thinking about him and he's you know, worrying about him in his sleep and whatnot. Um, totally possible. I don't see any reason to necessarily to say that that's not possible. But um, why would he have the flashback, right? You know, that Gandalf happens to be ref like at that time thinking back to his time in Orthanc. I mean, sure, he might be thinking back to his time in Orthanc, but that seems to me the weakest step uh, the weakest link in this chain, right? I would think if what Frodo saw was a current event, you know, like a current, like a message from Gandalf directly or a, or a, you know, a vision of Gandalf galloping up the Greenway or because he's not even in the Greenway, he's in the Shire by this point, right? Um, in other words, if he saw what Gandalf was doing right then or, or, you know, something to indicate some kind of communication, even unconscious communication from Gandalf, I'd be more inclined uh, to, to to believe this, but the idea, like, if he's connect, if he's contacting Gandalf's mind even subconsciously, why would the thing that he saw be the thing that happened to Gandalf, like, you know, days before? Um, that's the part that I can't really get to make sense. In addition, um, and Tongo makes a good point that the dream is in the third person, not from Gandalf's point of view, so it doesn't feel like he's seeing Gandalf's memory or something like that. Um, you know, that, I think that alone wouldn't stop me, Tungle, but I agree sort of in conjunction with the other stuff, um, you know, that, that, that seems to me relevant. Um, uh, the other thing, the other thing that I would say, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, well, I forgot the other thing I was just going to say about that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the council of Elrond, Gandalf is going to be surprised when Frodo bursts out with the recounting, with, with the mention of his dream, right? So if Gandalf, Gandalf's not, a, clearly, if Gandalf's mind is being touched by Frodo here, he's not aware of it, right? Um, and again, that's possible, right? There could be just like a, a sort of a subconscious um, uh, connection between the two of them. But, you know, uh, again, it just doesn't seem to me, um, it doesn't seem to me, compelling for that reason um anyway so okay uh so oh and uh, also arthur's point is a really good one um or ambrosius aurelianus i haven't said your full latin screen name in a while which i really like um i agree with arthur's point um uh, arthur has some um reassuring uh words here for fourth dauntless's concern about this interpretation about frodo's connection with the ring being much stronger 
than it would uh, than you know we might otherwise think it is. I agree when Arthur says that Frodo touching Gandalf's mind through dreams wouldn't necessarily be the result of training his mind uh, for domination. The for domination, I think, is the important thing there. Um, Frodo, remember when that conversation with Galadriel comes up. Frodo is asking Galadriel, um, "Hey, so uh, I'm permitted to wear the One Ring." Why, you know, she has just been saying that if the if the if Sauron gets the One Ring back, then you know the minds of the of the wielders of the three will be open to him. And Frodo's like, "Hey, why aren't they open to me? I'm wearing the One Ring, right? Why can't I? Why can't why can't I like see the Three Rings and like and 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 uh, you know like get into the minds of the masters?" And she's like, "Because you haven't tried, right? Don't try." Um, so, but the fact that he's not trained his mind to the dominion of others doesn't mean that he is not given some kind of connection. Again, we, we, the way that he is able to be in touch with Gandalf on Emon Hen does suggest that, you know, he, uh, he has some power, uh, there that, that it's connected with his own will there in part. So anyway, um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, excellent. Okay. Um, and Matt, you're right that Gandalf doesn't actively uh, connect until he's Gandalf the White. Yep, yeah, exactly. We certainly see no evidence of him being able to communicate with Frodo. Matt, you'd think he'd have tried that out beforehand, right? When he was on Orthanc, if he had the power to like telepathically communicate with Frodo over the miles that he might have... He might have uh, tried his hand at that from the pinnacle of Orthanc, right? <laughs> I'm late, Frodo. Get out, Frodo, right? There, you know, or even when he left, uh, when he left Bree, right, to go south to Orthanc, that he might have been like, forget sending a letter through Butterbur. I'm going to send a telepathic message to Frodo right now. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but great point, Forthalus. I think this is a really interesting theory, uh, and again, it's a kind of thing I think I think it could happen. Again, I'm not convinced that it is. Uh, but I think it, I think this is really good thinking. Uh, second point, uh, and this uh, 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 a short one. Gravity. I love this observation. Uh, gravity recalls uh, that when Tom wakes the hobbits on the first morning in his house, he says, "If you come soon, you'll find breakfast on the table. If you come late, you'll get grass and rainwater." Obviously, this is a jest, he says. But I love how the chosen alternative for coming late. Uh, is what was likely fed to the ponies. I suspect this is because Tom just fed the ponies, even though he doesn't mention that uh, in his morning activities. Um, I almost entirely agree with you here, Gravity. First of all, great observation. I had never thought that before. Um, I'd never really paused to think about the significance of the grass and rainwater exactly. Um, but I, th- as soon as you mention this, I think you're right. Uh, and I think it does have to do with the ponies. It is a rather conspicuous... Because it doesn't say they'll get nothing, Right. He says you'll get like the alternative breakfast, and the alternative breakfast is pony food, right? Grass and rainwater, um, which is doubtless a thing that ponies would enjoy. But I would, I would, I would make a distinction here. Um, well, hang on a second. First, the reason I agree with that, the reason I, I think that this is likely an explicitly pony-centric comment by Tom Bombadil, is remember we've seen evidence of this before. Um, uh, remember that. Um, the ponies were counted among the guests, right, who were coming to stay with them. And you'll recall that even before he came in to serve as host to the hobbits, they come in in Goldberry's there alone, right? Why? 
because Tom is tending their tired beasts, as Goldberry tells them. So Tom's um, first action as host, right, is to serve as host to the ponies. Um, and it, I, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, how he seems to view, uh, uh, he, you know, he and Goldberry are receiving nine guests, not four. Uh, and that seems to me an important element of Tom Bombadil, right? He, 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 just as he understands the life of the forest, as we were looking at last time, and we get that description of, you know, how trees look at the world, Tom Bombadil understands that, right? And he can tell stories about that. He can share that, um, he understands the pony point of view too. And I think that's why he tends them first, right? Because they're tired. They're even more tired than the hobbits are. Um, they are the top priority among all his guests. They need his services most, right? Um, and so, yeah, exactly. Toramarth and Tom is not speciesist, right? He doesn't just show automatic preferential treatment uh, to, um, uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the hobbits, right? To the bipeds. Um, yeah, JJ says that adds another parallel between Tom and Bjorn. JJ, I imagine that Tom and Bjorn would probably get along pretty well. They're fairly different, right? But I think they would get along uh, fa- fairly well. Um, but anyway, so gravity, I, I, I love that point, and I think you're absolutely right. But coming back, I, I, would, I, would, I would disagree with one thing, though. Um, I, I can't imagine that Tom gave the ponies grass and rainwater for breakfast. Um, I, 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 I'm sure Tom did better for the ponies than grass and rainwater. Not that, not but what the grass is good, though short, remember, there's not that much grass on Tom's lawn. It's shaven. Uh, so he mows his grass pretty short, so it's not going to be... An, you know, the, 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 the grass that they could get by being turned out to graze in his yard is not an abundant breakfast, right? Um, besides which, I think he'd do better than grass under any circumstances. Think of the elaborate hospitality down to the green slippers and everything that the hobbits have gotten. I think the ponies have gotten, you know, oats, maybe a, maybe a hot mash, right? They've, I think that they, he did, uh, he did pretty well, uh, by the ponies. So gravity, the way that I would correct your observation there at the end, I would say that the thing that he does the thing that he says to the hobbits right if you come soon you'll find breakfast on the table if you come late you'll get grass and rainwater is very likely the exact same thing that he said to the ponies he's doubtless already given the ponies breakfast right the hobbits have have slept in late and the ponies almost certainly did not Um, but i would totally expect he might have said exactly those same words to the ponies right you know come to the come to the manger uh you know soon and you'll get oats But if you come late, you'll get grass and rainwater. Um, So it's not that he's offering them pony food instead of hobbit food if they're late to the table. It's that he's saying, you're going to be in the same boat. I'm going to treat you the same way as as I treat the ponies, right? I'm going to provide you breakfast. But, you know, if you don't come quick, you'll have to go out and graze just like like the ponies did. Um, Yeah, yeah. Valori asks if he mowed his lawn or did he simply ask it not to grow too high? Did he just say, whoa, there, right? And the grass stopped growing. That's always possible. But shaven is the word that's used on two different occasions to describe his lawn. Um, And that sounds like there's a blade involved, right? I think he actually mows the lawn somehow. I don't know exactly how. Um, uh, Tony is guessing sheep, possibly. Uh, We we don't meet any sheep there, but of course sheep would do an excellent job uh, at that. Um, yeah, very good. Um, okay, 
Excellent. Um, cool. Cool. Um, yeah, a scythe uh, it probably is how he would do it, though. The, I, I, the word shaven was always striking to me, and I, I always sort of assumed that that was just a, like, you know, modern America, we use the word mow, you know, the verb mow to describe the cutting of the grass. Um, that, you know, I, I'm not I'm not sure if that was just sort of a cultural thing. I'm like, it can't be literally shaven, you know, like you would scrape a blade across your face. Um, I mean, I think it's like the grass is, is cut down to the dirt, right? Uh, as shaving suggests to me. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, Arrowhead is wondering if he uh, sings the shears into cutting it for him, magician's apprentice style. Uh, you know, you never know. You never know. Yes, JJ, like the green on a golf course is how I've always imagined, or maybe like the fairway, right? Possibly the fairway grass, maybe as short as the green. But yes, that's that's exactly what I picture uh, when Tolkien describes the shaven grass uh, in uh, in Bombadil's uh, lawn. But uh, okay, all right. Um, now uh, let's um, we'll get to back to Tom Bombadil's words in a second. First, pause for a word from our sponsors. Uh, several of you sent in. Uh, messages about uh, what exploring the Lord of the Rings has meant to you and uh, accompanying your uh, your emails um, uh, when you were donating and sending us emails I'm really I always always really appreciate it. I want I just always want you to know I never take uh, those for granted I'm always happy uh, to receive messages I love hearing about you know who's watching and listening sometimes you know, I love interacting with you guys and I love being with you here on a Tuesday night. But, you know, sometimes the Internet can be a kind of a lonely place and it's always great to hear from people and to hear their stories and um, uh, and, and and what's going on. So anyway, I just wanted to share a couple of those with you here tonight. Uh, uh, Justin uh, Okendor says, these classes have been more than I ever dreamed they would be. The passion and effort put into each class is amazing. Corey brings a unique insight into Middle Earth. Well, Anyway, I'm not sure about that. We just look at it carefully together, but that's cool. And these classes have helped bring a greater understanding to the books than I would have been able to accomplish on my own. I know! I feel exactly the same way as that, actually. There are so many things that I have learned already uh, about chapters 1 through 7 uh, in our discussions. Um, you know, there's going through these things together uh, with you guys certainly uh, brings me a greater understanding of the books than I would have been able to accomplish on my own either. Uh, combining it with the Lord of the Rings Online is a match made in heaven, though, and just adds to the Im to the immersion into Middle-earth. Not only do we get to experience locales and characters explicitly mentioned and described in the text, we get to see the far greater world of Middle-earth that was only hinted at in the books. Uh, Corey's analysis and perspective is invaluable for delving into the deeper meaning of places that I've admired in the game world for years, but I've never truly understood. It's really fun, isn't it? Again, I just, um, I love how Lotro uh, is, the, the Lotro world is so rewarding to look at closely, both to think about and, you know, to kind of take what we know about the world from the appendices and stuff like that, right? All the background stuff that Tolkien wrote and then look at the game and see how well it fits, how well uh, it matches that, you know, how, how well you can understand that in terms of, of what Tolkien said. Um, but of course, also the attention to detail and the way that they develop their own stories and, and uh, you know, when there's, when there's very little to go on in Tolkien and, and you know, the, 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 the creative but really respectful and interesting ways 
um, that are so consonant and resonant with Tolkien's world that they go on and do that. It's so much fun. Um, okay. In addition, the fellowship we experience as we explore this all together is what really draws me in. I have friends old and new that look forward to every Tuesday evening because we know we get to spend time with each other in a literary world we are deeply passionate about. Signum U has made all this possible. Thanks, Justin. I, I really appreciate your words there. Um, and yeah, I am. Um, uh, I've been. I, I love the community that we build here. You know, this this is the. Th I've been. I was re reflecting a lot about this this past weekend uh, in Iowa uh, in our Iowa moot, which was awesome. By the way, we had seventy people attend uh, the the Iowa moot uh, this past weekend. Uh, so we had. You know, I was going to make a joke about like increasing the population of Waterloo, Iowa, but I don't. Uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to tease the Iowans too much. It was really great being there. It was really fun, um, and it was it was it was it was so cool. We had. You know, not only a bunch of Iowans, but we also had people from Illinois, Indiana, down from Minnesota, up from uh, uh, from you know from Kansas City. It was awesome. Um, but um, anyway, it was uh, it was it, it was a great crowd, and it was really neat to hear from a lot of people there um, about sort of the same thing. Just you know, not only getting to uh, getting to you know, was I so delighted to be able to get to meet so many people, many of whom. Uh, are either attending here live or have been following, uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings asynchronously. Um, but also just, uh, just like seeing them get to meet each other, right? And I can see this kind of community uh, in action. And I have loved that. I've been, as I said, I was reflecting on that historically even more, thinking because at the Iowa Moot were two of the original Silmarillionaires, two of the members of the Silmarillion Seminar from back in 2010. And it was really the Silmarillion Seminar that started um, that started this whole thing. Uh, and it was that experiment, uh, that kind of crazy, uh, semi-spontaneous experiment, uh, that I started in 2010, uh, that really, that really got this whole thing going. Um, and first showed me what, how dynamic, uh, a classroom community really can grow, uh, through these kinds of interactions, through this kind of, uh, through this kind of learning environment. Uh, so yes, I, I've been kind of thinking about that same thing, Justin, really glad that you're appreciating that. Justin, great to see you, uh, here tonight, uh, there as well. Um, okay. Um, excellent. Um, let's go. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, Marianne is asking, is the Silmarillion seminar archived? It is. You can get it, uh, through the Tolkien professor podcast. It's all archived there. There's no video component. It's just audio. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's all it's all it's it's all still there. Um, yeah, Lady Schmebulak says that's where uh, you first found me. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, Silmarillion Seminar is classic. Uh, it's it's always going to have a very special place in my heart uh, as uh, really the thing that pretty much changed my life. Essentially, um, I mean, it's really not uh, not any exaggeration to say that. Um, all right, back to Tom Bombadil. Um, wow, Brunier, you've been with me since the first podcast, since like the original Hobbit series and, you know, how to read Tolkien and why, uh, way back in 2007 or 2008 or whenever that was. Uh, that's, uh, that's been, that's, uh, that's old school. All right. Remember back in the days when people used to complain about me not releasing enough material, right? Back when people were like, come on, release more episodes. Uh, back when, uh, back when I was still like, pre-recording and like heavily editing and I was doing so much work for each episode. So it took me forever. It was like a month between 
between episodes uh, while I was, you know, teaching and doing a whole bunch of other things, not to mention like raising a small, my first child uh, and everything at the time as well. Um, and uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah, the Hobbit series did take a while uh, to, to finish, but um, Gilgun Theory says he remembers this, the uh, Silmarillion seminars delays in posting. That was totally Dave Kale's fault. I'm going to throw Dave under the bus. Ah, just kidding. I mean, it was his fault, but it was all good. I wasn't doing any better. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I sometimes reflect back on those days uh, and when I am sort of observing the fact that, uh, I, you know, I now release like 10 hours a week of material instead of one episode every three weeks like I did uh, back in the day. Um, awesome. Cool. All right, well, let's get back to Tom Bombadil. So, uh, remember, as we were saying at the end of class last time, um, there was, um, you know, we were looking at uh, uh, Tom Bombadil talking about sort of the, the the spirit of the forest, right? You know, looking at things from the tree's point of view, um, showing us the life of the forest. Uh, then his talk shifts, and we get to the life of the downs, and things start to take a rather interesting turn. So, okay. Suddenly, Tom's talk left the woods and went leaping up the young stream, over bubbling waterfalls, over pebbles and worn rocks, and among small flowers in close grass and wet crannies, wandering, wandering at last up onto the downs. They heard of the great barrows, and the green mounds, and the stone rings upon the hills and in the hollows among the hills. Sheep were bleeding in flocks. Green walls and white walls rose. There were fortresses on the heights. Kings of little kingdoms fought together and the young sun shone like fire on the red metal of their new and greedy swords. There was victory and defeat, and towers fell, and fortresses were burned, and flames went up into the sky. Gold was piled on the biers of dead kings and queens, and mounds covered them, and the stone doors were shut, and the grass grew over all. Sheep walked for a while, biting the grass, but soon the hills were empty again. A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Barrow whites walked in the hollow places with a clink of rings on cold fingers and gold chains in the wind. Stone rings grinned out of the ground like broken teeth in the moonlight. Okay. Um, first, let's look at the transition here, right? Suddenly, Tom's... Because remember, the emphasis of his talk, he was telling stories, right? But his stories were sharing that inside perspective, right? Helping the hobbits to see things from the point... Not just telling stories about animals. Helping them to see stories from animals' point of views, right? And then, of course, from trees. And that's how they came to understand Old Man Willow and what he does. Now, um, suddenly, Tom's talk left the woods and went leaping up the young stream over bubbling waterfalls, over pebbles and worn rocks, and among small flowers, in close, close grass and wet crannies, wandering at last up onto the downs. Notice where we start, right? Before we get to the stories of people, right, we get um, the story of the stream, right? I love this one little bit. We don't get anything more than this, right? But he, he, follows, he follows the young stream, up from the mountain into uh, into the downs, right? Because it comes down from the downs, right? Down into the into the into the Withywindle Valley, um, and you know we don't get a whole big like. And this is the point of view of uh, um, 
this is the point of view of the river, right? Exactly. But it's it's like a glimpse of that, right? Instead of just you know leaping oh leaping up makes it suggest that we're 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 going quickly, right? We're uh, uh, we're kind of skipping over a whole big space and leaving the forest behind, and of course we are. But but it's not. This isn't leaping high in the air. This is this is leaping, but it's pretty it's it's pretty low down, right? As we're uh, invited to think of the the pebbles in worn rocks and the small flowers in close grass and wet crannies, um, which gives us a really neat visual image of this you know stream and what the stream is flowing over as it comes down. Um, and so, yeah, Stephanie, exactly. With each story, some kind of natural element is always a part of it. I mean, it's Tom. Um, Tom understands all of these things. Tom thinks about all these things. Tom, you know, respects and understands even the inanimate things, right? Not just, not just the beasts, right? Not just the plants, which a lot of people skip over, but even things like pebbles, right? And worn rocks and wet crannies, you know, the life of the stream. Uh, and that's really, that's really interesting. Now, I agree with you. Let's see. Um, mm, uh, uh, Oh yeah, Arthur was saying earlier that uh, it really this really highlights the fruitlessness of all that war and treasure hoarding. Yeah, that's what really struck me too. Um, you know, in thinking about it this time through, several of you are asking, like, hang on a second, like, which kingdoms are these exactly? Are we talking about Arnor? Are we talking about something else? I think one of the things that's really important about this passage is that we can't tell, right? It could be, right? We could be talking about Cardolan. And the the Numenorean civil wars, right? That's possible. Um, you know, kings of little kingdoms fought together could well be a description, right, of like the kingdoms of Cardolan and Rudaur and Arthodyne fighting with each other. And we know that the Barrow Downs was an important spot, right? That was basically where uh, the people of Cardolan hold up, you know, where they forded up, and um, uh, it was really sort of the last stand of the people of Cardolan before they were destroyed. So we know that that was, you know, the Barrow Downs are a significant spot for that civil war. But it's not the only, they're not the only people, right? Keep in mind, the Barrow Downs are ancient. Um, and we, well, we will be told, at least if we haven't been told yet, that they're far older than Cardolan, right? There were already barrows there when the uh, when the Numenorians took refuge there, um, so um, I don't think it's necessarily true. Um, uh, I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's necessarily true that we can conclude. It's always tempting to, and I know that's what I always pictured first and foremost um, when I uh, when I got to this passage. You know, especially since. Especially in my younger years, I was always really quick to want to apply, you know, geeky knowledge that I had gained from reading things like the appendices and the Silmarillion and stuff like that, right? So I was exactly the kind of uh, the kind of dork, the kind of sometimes insufferable dork, you know, who would read something and pop up and be like, "Ooh, it's the kingdoms of Carlin and Rudar that he's talking about." Okay, right, I get it. I, I I know what he's referring to, and again, maybe, but I think it's important that it's unclear. Right. Um, in fact, if I had to guess, if somebody forced me uh, to give an opinion on what kingdom, I would say it's not actually 
Uh, kings of little kingdoms fought together, and the young sun shone like fire on the red metal of their new and greedy swords. I think this predates Arnor. Um, swords aren't new in Middle-earth by the time of the Arnorian civil wars, right? It's not a new thing. Nor is the sun young anymore. The sun's been around for a while now, by that point, right? I mean, it's mid-third age of the sun. So um, I think this is probably new. This is probably like the first humans, like the, the new and greedy swords uh, and the young sun suggests to me the men who first settled here. And we will be told relatively soon that the Bree landers, that Bree has stood here before the Numenor, the Numenorean kingdoms were established, right? So um, I do think that uh, there's reason to think that, again, could he be alluding to the Arnorian civil wars too? Sure. Yeah, he absolutely could, right? But again, the point is, it's more than that. And I don't think this is a specific historical reference. And isn't that kind of interesting, right? Think about this in context of what we've been getting, right? We've been getting the life of beasts and the life of trees, the life of the forest, the life of the stream. And now what do we get? The life of men, right? But the life of men told differently. Notice what our impulse is, right? When it comes to the life of men, we want historic historical details, right? Okay, who was this? And exactly when was it, right? But that doesn't tell the story, really, right? Not the important story. Not the kind of big-picture story that Tom Bombadil is telling. Tom Bombadil is not telling us particular tales about particular people any more than he was introducing us to, like, particular birds or beasts. Or, or okay, there was one particular tree he was introducing us to, but that was a special case, right? Um, it was beasts, birds, trees you know, a glimpse into their lives in general that Tom was helping us to get, right? And I think he's doing the same thing for humans here, right? To back up and look at this, um, because it's something that we might be kind of too close to, in a sense, to see. And what he shows us, shows us is just as Arthur um, just as Arthur had said, and Lincoln, I like your comment, it's the story of human kingdoms from the viewpoint of geologic time. In essence, yes, you can notice how you can see it's this 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 has uh, this description has something of the quality of a time lapse uh, of time lapse photography, right? Um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's like this, right? You know that 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 sense of sort of seeing all of these things, seeing all these things uh, come and go. Um, and because this is what it looks like, right? Green walls and white walls rose. There were fortresses on the heights. What fortresses? What people? Who was the king? It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter any more than it matters like which sparrow was building his nest that year, right? Or, you know, what badger was, you know, setting up his hole that season, right? It's not that those things don't matter at all. They do. But which king set up his fortress on the hills doesn't count any more than that from the perspective of Tom Bombadil, right? Um, these things are all alike in that way. Um, and notice there's only one difference. Well, we do get like the passing away, right? Gold was piled on the beers of dead kings and queens. And Tony, I think you mentioned earlier uh, Tolkien's poem, The Horde. 
and yes, there's very much a, um, a sense of that same kind of feeling uh, here as, in, as is in that poem. Um, I think that that's, uh, that's, I, that's, that, that, that's very right. So if you have The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, um, uh, the, the, the book, I mean, um, you can, the, the Horde was published in the 1964 Adventures of Tom Bombadil. You can find it in the Tolkien Reader. Um, it's, uh, it's, it does give this a similar kind of perspective. It's more fo- focused on, you know, on, on the gold and the love of gold itself. This is, the gold is kind of incidental here, but it does have a, it does have a, a similar kind of feel. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Amazon, I agree. War, war doesn't change, right? It is much more about birds and beasts in their ways, right? Humans in their ways. And one of their ways is, is war, right? It's what they do. They raise fortresses, they tear them down, they fight, they kill each other, they, they pile up treasure, they bury the treasure with the dead, and then pretty soon, right, after, you know, the blink of an eye, like a thousand years, right, the entire kingdom is gone, and what are you, you're just left with sheep biting the grass, right? Um, but then comes what is clearly an, a change of epoch, right? A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Barrow whites walked in the hollow places with a clink of rings on cold fingers and gold chains in the wind. Now, in part, that would seem to be... Um, no, Brandon, you're right. I'm not getting that reference. Uh, sorry. Um, but anyway... Um, the, 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 in part, I think, the Barrow whites show like it's a it's continuing commentary on the whole treasure thing right uh the animated corpses wearing that treasure um there's a certain there's like an element of hamlet's graveyard about that right remember you know uh you know uh uh alas poor yorick i knew him horatio right there's there's an element of that that contemplation that this treasure that you so prize this treasure that kings likely fought over, which seemed like, you know, this wealth was the biggest deal in the world, is now being, you know, worn about by animated corpses. So how about that, right? How's that, how's that for the end point of your of your wars and bitter struggles? So in some sense, it's like the sequel to the, you know, the the warring business. Um, but, um, but of course, there's also this is also a change, right? A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Um, this is not an automatic. This is not part of the normal cycle, right? This is an aberration, um, and this is really the first thing which is a demonstrable point in history, right? Um, Tom remembers of all that he's seen in the Barrow Downs, right? There were lots of changes. Well, what humans would have called changes, right? Political changes and whatnot. But that's the first real change that um, that Tom sees, right? Um, when the shadow comes and animates the bodies and the Barrow Whites start walking. That's a different thing. So what's up with this dark sh- the shadow out of dark places far away? What do we know about it? Now wait, as always, 
don't let your first impulse be to reach outwards, right? Don't let your first impulse be to reach to the Silmarillion, you know, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. Don't let, don't even let your first impulse be to reach elsewhere in the Lord of the Rings. Your first impulse always here, the immediate context of the reference, right? Because we get immediate context to the reference. A shadow came out of dark places far away and the bones were stirred. Stone rings grinned out of the ground like broken teeth in the moonlight. Right? Now, the stone rings is ruins, right? The ruins of towers, presumably. Um, and uh, several of you were talking about how deeply creepy uh, that line is. You know, the line about um, uh, stone rings grinned out of the ground like broken teeth in the moonlight. Uh, it is... It is extremely creepy. Uh, I absolutely agree. Um, but it's... Um, it's interesting in a couple ways, isn't it? First of all, the immediate comparison, the, the, um, the simile here, comparing the ruins of those fortresses that were built on the heights by the kings of little kingdoms earlier on, those ruins are being compared to broken teeth right, to human teeth, right, especially in the context of the Barrow Whites, right, and the, the, the cold fingers uh, and the, the gold chains in the wind, the bones stirring in the mounds. Uh, it's hard not to think of, like, skeletal teeth, right? Um, in other words, the ruins, the remains, I should say, of the works of the humans seems to be being compared to the remains, the physical remains of humans, right, like their bodies, um, uh, so that, that parallel that it's establishing is kind of interesting. Um, the grind too also makes me in the context, having just talked about Barrow Whites and moving on to talking about broken teeth, uh, makes me think of, of skeletons, right? But I don't know about you, but I can't totally skip past the word rings, stone rings, right? Again, it, literally, it's a defensive fortification, right? Either whether it's around tower or whether it's around wall. Um, um, yeah, as the mad violinist says, ring forts were a stage of military tech in old Britain. Absolutely. I mean, whether this is like a, you know, the, 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 the broken teeth or from the wall of, you know, like an old Martin Bailey castle or whatever. Um, yeah. But at the same time, rings, you know, um, <laughs> you know, especially in this question of the shadow coming out of dark places far away. And just so that you don't think I'm totally crazy and making that connection, we get a we get a thing in the middle. Right. We get a middle term there between the shadow coming out of dark places and the stone rings grinning out of the ground. We also get the clink of rings on cold feet. The bear whites are wearing rings. Um, does that mean the Barrow Whites are ring raids? No. Though, that was Tolkien's first impulse. Um, Tolkien was going to make the Barrow Whites the ring raids. Uh, in the very first draft, when, when the ring raids first came onto the scene and Tolkien had no idea what they were, which is, of course, how it usually happens with Tolkien, you know, when Frodo is hiding in the grass and somebody's coming on horseback down the path behind him and he thinks it might be Gandalf, um, and originally it is Gandalf in the very, very first draft. It is Gandalf, but then he's revising it. And all of a sudden the white horse turns into a black horse 
and suddenly Frodo's being pursued by a black rider that he, and Tolkien doesn't have any idea what this thing is, right? Um, in that stage, when he was just trying to discover, what is this thing? Who, who, who is the black rider uh, who is pursuing Frodo? Um, he decided they were ringwraiths, but he didn't know what they were, right? Um, so he, uh, he, um, he, he thought maybe they're bear lights. That was one of the theories. Um, he moves away from that, but it was, uh, that was a thing for a while. Um, so yeah, Amethor and a couple others are talking about Stonehenge, you know, whether that was the kind of thing that Tolkien was thinking when he was thinking of, when he was describing the, the stone rings like broken teeth. Um, I think it's quite possible that he was thinking of something like that. In fact, what we'll get descriptions of in the Barrow Downs, um, you know, sometime in November, um, will definitely suggest something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, uh, Tom, I think it's a great way of saying it. Tom says he passes from the rings that are jewelry to the rings that are ruins or hinges. All is vanity, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, Absolutely. So yeah, I think that, um, uh, what does this suggest to us? Does it suggest the shadow that came out of dark places far away? Um, you know, I think this is obviously connected to Sauron. Now, in other writings, Tolkien says that this was kind of under the authority of the Witch King, right? When the Witch King was, um, uh, setting up in Angmar and, and he, you know, that this, the, the animation of the dead, uh, in the Barrow Downs was one of the works of of the Witch King under Sauron, the necromancer, who is his boss, clearly. Um, but um, hang on, you guys are getting audio glitches? Really? Oh, I didn't know that. You guys should have told me. Hang on a second. Let me uh, let me see what's going on here. Uh, I should. Should be okay. I think. It looks like my audio is fine. I'm connected to the right microphone. Just wanted to make sure. Just wanted to check here, because I don't want people's audio to be bad. Um. Yeah, I think. Hmm. Shouldn't be different from usual. Okay. Anyway. Um. All right. Um, Miltholio asks, is this connection to the animation of the dead why he's called the necromancer? Sort of. That is to say, um, not necessarily this incident exactly, but this kind of thing. Um, Miltholio, it's actually a little vague. Um, the necromantic thing, right? Um, he is associated... So he's originally called the necromancer in the Lay of Lathian. That's the first time. Uh, he comes up as an, when he's through the necromancer, Sauron, that is to say, not the witch king. Um, so when, um, so it's when, when uh, Baron and Finrod Felagund, if you know the Silmarillion story, when Baron and Finrod Felagund meet Sauron um, in the isle that was called Minas Tirith originally, um, it's, um, he, he is the necromancer. And the Lay of Lathian refers to his um, uh, sort of relationship with spirits in particular. He's the master of werewolves. Um, that is, he takes spirits and he puts them into wolves. He, he's, he like makes 
werewolves or sort of takes wolves and twists them into werewolves by binding evil spirits to them. So sending spirits into, um, uh, into, you know, like the spirit into like the bodies of wolves as the kind of, you know, fun experiment that uh, the necromancer is involved in, uh, in the lay of Lathian. He keeps the name, even in the early drafts of the Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien calls him the Necromancer quite frequently. In later revisions, and of course, as you know, in the published text, he's called the Necromancer very seldom. Um, that name doesn't quite completely drop out of the Lord of the Rings, but it's mostly removed, whereas that's still his primary, um, primarily what he's called uh, in, the, uh, um, uh, in the early drafts. But, okay. Um, all right. Yeah. And if you think about it, what necromancy actually means, right? What necromancy actually means is divination by the dead, right? That is to gain knowledge by communicating with the dead. Um, that's what the mancy part at the end uh, means. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure how literally of how literally he was a necromancer. Um, was he like communicating with the spirits of the dead? Is that what Tolkien was implying in the Lay of Lathian when he called him that? Um, you are right, who was saying about the Hobbit? Um, uh, the Mad Violinist. Uh, the title of the Necromancer originates in the Hobbit. Uh, no, it originates in the Lay of Lathian, which he was writing right, but at the same time he was writing the Hobbit. So, I mean, you know, he's writing Canto Eight uh, of the Lay of Lathian at very, very close to like within a year of when he was writing the Hobbit. Um, and he, the, the necromancer is totally recycled out of the lay of Lathian. Um, uh, he's, he is Sauron. Um, Sauron not remade. Sauron recycled is what he is, uh, in, um, uh, in, in the Hobbit. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, and Tony, I agree. It makes Sauron not only terrifying, but creepy. Uh, and I, I, I think that's actually a really important effect, uh, in fact. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, anyway, so I think we've said enough about this paragraph here. Uh, but again, but big picture again, remember, life of the forest to the life of the downs, uh, to human, not human history exactly, uh, but to the life of humans. And you've got to think, right? There's a, there's a cause and effect here. Um, remember that the, the life of the forest was kind of creepy, right? It was a disquieting look at the way trees think. Um, especially old man Willow, remember it is not comfortable lore, uh, Frodo thinks. So perhaps at the end of the previous paragraph, we were thinking like, man, trees are freaky, right? Like forests are creepy, creepy places to know that that's what the for the trees are thinking, right? They're resenting us for walking around on two legs and they're, you know, like burning, hacking destroyers and usurpers, like destroyers and usurpers. That's So when I'm sitting under a tree, right, you know, having a picnic, the tree is there looming over me thinking destroyer and usurper, right? I mean, like, you know, that paragraph could lead to kind of disquieting thoughts, hatred of all that goes on two legs, feelings, that's kind of extreme, right? So he might be like, whoa, okay, forests, like, wow, that forests are bad news. And then what do we get in the next paragraph? Oh, uh, people. People also are bad news, right? Um, this is how all of it looks. You know, uh, Tom Bombadil sees the, you know, 
he doesn't he he does not look away from the dark side of of all the things right tom doesn't have a rose tinted view of anything either the trees or the beasts and birds or the people right and that's the view it's tom's view tom's uh very long-term and non-rosy view that we're getting through these uh through these paragraphs okay <laughs> uh Calardier says, hence why he and Goldberry are not the most social. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah. And Gilgonthir, I agree. Tom is more perceptive than people give him credit for in all of his capering about. You're right. Isn't it true that when you imagine Tom Bombadil skipping and dancing and bounding and singing about his jacket and his boots, it's easy to think of himself as completely self-absorbed, right? Here's this guy, I mean... Surely, if anybody's oblivious, this guy is, right? Uh, he seems clueless and oblivious, but of course we see, no, he uh, is deeply in tune to, uh, to all of these things. Um, yeah, good. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. Let's do a second paragraph, shall we? What do you say? The hobbits shuddered. Even in the Shire, <clears throat> even in the Shire, the rumor of the Barrow Whites of the Barrow Downs beyond the forest had been heard. But it was not a tale any hobbit liked to listen to, even by a comfortable fireside far away. These four now suddenly remembered what the joy of this house had driven from their minds. The house of Tom Bombadil nestled under the very shoulder of those dreaded hills. They lost the thread of his tail and shifted uneasily, looking aside at one another. Um interesting what their reaction is what their reaction to this story their reaction to the story isn't kind of they reflect on trees but they don't reflect on humanity right they don't sit there and think like oh well yeah people just as just as twisted as trees are right that's not their reaction um they start to think of themselves right it pulls them out of the thread of tom's story um as they remember uh, they've got to go through the Barrow Downs and they're not happy thinking of, uh, you know, the, not only the history of this place, but, you know, the whole Walking Dead issue, right? Um, this is much more personally uncomfortable lore. This, rem this reminds me, by the way, of uh, Bjorn's house, right? And how the dwarves get really uncomfortable because Bjorn is telling them stories about Mirkwood. And they're, they're not enjoying hearing stories about Mirkwood because they know they have to go through it next, right? Um, kind of reminds me of that. Now, you're right, Lincoln. The hobbits do already consider the big people kind of dodgy. They might not take these stories to heart because that's how the big people carry on, right? It's not how hobbits act. Maybe, maybe they think uh, it doesn't apply to them, right? Perhaps. Anyway, let's keep going. When they caught his words again, they found that he had now wandered into strange regions beyond their memory and beyond their waking thought, into times when the world was wider and the seas flowed straight to the western shore. And still on and back Tom went, singing out into the ancient starlight, when only the elf sires were awake. Then suddenly he stopped, and they saw that he nodded as if he was falling asleep. The hobbit sat still before him and chanted, and it seemed as if, under the spell of his words, the wind had gone and the clouds had dried up, and the day had been withdrawn, and the darkness had come from east and west, and all the sky was filled with the light of white stars. 
Tony. Yeah, Tony says one of his favorite passages uh, in the whole book. Uh, this is a really striking one. Um, let's uh, let's look at it again there. So notice, I want to draw attention to what's happening here. Um, Tom had wandered into strange regions beyond their memory and beyond their waking thought, into the times when the world was wider and the seas flowed straight to the western shore. So we know when this is, right? This is the first age before the, uh, the um, certainly before the drowning of Numenor, right? When the world was made round so that the seas flow straight to the western shore, but also um, when the world was wider, right? Which means before the drowning of Beleriand in the War of Wrath, right? So it's before Numenor, before the War of Wrath. Um, and still on and back, Tom went singing out into ancient starlight when only the elf sires were awake. Notice the way that this is described. It's like they're watching Tom himself moving, right? But notice that they're initially detached from it. Um, they lost the thread of his, of his tail, right? They were thinking about their own affairs. Then when they come back, it's like they're seeing Tom from a distance. There goes Tom, off into the first stage, right? Um, he's going beyond their memory and beyond their waking thought. Um, still on and back, Tom went singing out into ancient starlight. No, he's not singing about ancient starlight, right? He's doubtless singing, but he's not singing about it. He's singing into the ancient star. That is, they are seeing an image of Tom going out into the ancient starlight singing, right? When only the elf sires were awake. Then suddenly he stopped, and they saw that he nodded as if he was falling asleep. So Tom's not singing anymore. Tom's song stops and what happens when Tom's song stops? The hobbit sat still before him, enchanted. Now keep in mind, that's an important word in Tolkien's vocabulary. It's easy to skim over that one, right? Because we tend to use it really, you know, sort of vaguely, right? Um, enchanted, I'm sure, right? The word enchanted has a very specific definition. Um, it's one of the words that he prefers to use instead of the word magic, enchantment, right? Specifically, it is when you are drawn into the sub-creation of somebody else, when you are, um, uh, when somebody sings a song that draws you into it, right? Bilbo is enchanted by the dwarf's song, right? When he finds himself thinking dwarfish thoughts uh, back in chapter one of The Hobbit, that's enchantment, Right? The enchantment doesn't is is not coterminous with Tom's song. There's a kind of enchantment already in evidence, given the description of his song there, right? How they're seeing him, um, this picture that they're getting of Tom uh, went out singing into the ancient starlight, right? That's um, uh, there's evidence of enchantment there, but then he stops singing, and it doesn't stop. I absolutely agree. Um, uh, I absolutely agree, Tony, that he projects the images with his song the way that the elves can. Yes, the same kind of enchantment. But here, I think, again, we see a difference. The hobbit sat still before him enchanted, and it seemed as if, 
Under the spell of his words, the wind had gone, and the clouds had dried up, and the day had been withdrawn, and the darkness had come from east and west, and all the sky was filled with the light of white stars. That's the enchantment, right? They see, they experience the light of the stars before the sun and moon, right? Um, think of how this is an extension of what Tom has been doing, right? Tom has been bringing them into the experience of the birds and beasts and of the trees, right? Has shown them, you know, this view of humanity, right? And the passing of time over human realms uh, and seeing in this big picture uh, what human ambitions and stuff are. And now he's showing them what they what is well beyond their memory and beyond their waking thought, right? What they could scarcely imagine, the world as it was in the beginning, when there were only the stars, um, no wind, no clouds, right? No day. The darkness comes from east and west. That sounds bad at first, doesn't it? The darkness came from east and west, and it's like, oh no, oblivion, end of the world. No, it's not the end of the world. It's the beginning of the world, right? And all the sky was filled with the light of white stars. Um, yeah, Tony, this is the world of the elves of Quivienne. Well, I would say, Tony, this predates the world of the elves of Quivienne, right? This is the world into which the elves of Quivienne woke up, right? But this is before even the elf sires were awake. Um, and But again, I would want to lay an emphasis on the fact that this enchantment is going on before, like after he stopped singing. That singing can bring about this kind of enchantment is a thing that we've seen. We've seen them enchanted already. They were enchanted under the influence of the elf singing when they overheard Gilder and his people singing, right? Now, Tom's singing stops and the enchantment continues, right? And what's the enchantment of? You notice what's the final stage? Understand the lives of birds and beasts. Understand the lives of of, uh, of trees, understand the lives of humans, what's the final step? What's the final step? Yeah, the life of the world, Tony suggests. The life of the valor, Lincoln suggests. I would say, yes, those things. Um, the life of the world, but I wonder, is it his own perspective? Yeah, the life of Ea suggests Marianne. I definitely think that there's there's some of that. Um, I think it's I think it's Tom himself. I think it's Tom himself. Um, he remembers this. This is this was his world, right? Before all these things happened, right? Um, yeah, when he first entered, this is Tom's first experience of Arda here that we're getting. And remember, it looks as he's, he's nodding, right? It looks like he's falling asleep, right? Um, that's, uh, thinking about dreams as we've been, right? I, it kind of makes me wonder about that, 
right? Is this, is Tom dreaming in a sense, dreaming of his own history and sharing that dream with them through this enchantment that he has woven through his song? I don't really know the mechanics of this, right? Um, but, um, but yeah. Um, and so several of you talking about, you know, sort of who and what Tom is. I think it's this, he's, he predates the elves, no question. And I think that was a very cunning piece of reading by, oh, who was it about Varda's stars? Who was it who mentioned Varda's stars? Um, Tungle. Yeah, very good. Um, uh, there is this sense in which, so remember Varda made like the constellations, like the special stars, the brightest stars and everything in anticipation of the birth of the firstborn, right? Before the elves awoke. Um, she did, she performed, there were stars already, but she performs her great labor and she puts the great stars and makes the signs in the, in the heavens and things like that. Um, and that's when the, uh, when the elves wake up after she finishes her great labor with the stars. Um, but yeah, Tungo, I think you're quite likely right. Um, and all the sky was filled with a light of white stars. Now that doesn't definitely say that the constellations aren't there. Um, it may be that they're not, but even the fact that we're told, you know, when only the elf sires were awake, um, uh, and then, you know, we, we, we've been, we've been still hitting the way back button, right? I don't see any reason to think we've stopped hitting the way back button. So I do think that that final vision is prior to the awakening of the elves. Um, which means I, I, I don't think there can be any question about the fact that Tom Bombadil is not one of the children of the Lubitar. I mean, he can't be. Um, he remembers the stars uh, before the elves awoke. So he's not a human. He's not an elf, right? Uh, clearly. Um, but uh, notice where we go from here. Whether the morning and evening of one day or many days had passed, Frodo could not tell. He did not feel either hungry or tired, only filled with wonder. The stars shone through the window, and the silence of the heavens seemed to be round him. He spoke at last out of his wonder, and a sudden fear of that silence. Who are you, master? he said. Tom Bombadil uh, has shown himself to them, or rather has shared his experience, his memory, with them. And Frodo's response is to say again, to repeat his question. Who are you? Right? I think uh, Frodo is... I was arguing before that when he says to Goldberry, um, if, my, if, you know, if my asking is not foolish, who is Tom Mobile? Right? Was based on the premise of like, he seems like an important chap. Right? He seems he's powerful. Right? So who who is he really? What's his title? What's what's his job? What, you know, what's his background? What, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Is he an ally of the elves? Who is he? Right? Who is he really? Um, I think that we're seeing the same kind of thing, right? That is, but notice when he's asking now, he's asking an entirely different level, uh, and I think that he got an answer the first time. So what would push him to ask the same question again? He got Goldberry's answer. Why does he need to ask the question again? Because now I think he's asking with really big eyes, right? Before he was like, this dude is probably important. He may have played a significant role, you know, in the history of the third age. And now he's like, dude, this guy goes back to before the elves, right? Which means, 
wait a second, who are you? Right? Are you one of the Valar? Are you like, what is going on here, right? So that his wonder at Tom prompts him to, uh, uh, to ask again, who are you? Now, one thing I wanted to mention, um, and uh, Matt, you are anticipating me exactly. Um, uh, yeah, at the mad, uh, mad violinist, I agree. This uh, doesn't this "Who are you?" feel different from the first one, right? And I think it's because you get it's like a whole different context, right? Uh, now, but Matt asked the very sensible question: Why is Why is Frodo afraid? He spoke at last out of his wonder wonder, very understandable under the circumstances, and a sudden fear of that silence. He's not afraid of Tom Bombadil. He's afraid of the silence. The stars shone through the window and the silence of the heavens seemed to be round him. He speaks in wonder and a sudden fear of that silence. Um... Yeah, Mad Violinist says the silence is too big for a little hobbit, particularly if this uh, if it is the silence before the song of creation. Marianne, I absolutely agree with you. Um, Tungo just said exactly the same thing. I think this is all that he is. So, what kind of fear is this, right? C.S. Lewis is great on this, right? The two kinds of fear. We can clearly see this in operation uh, in Tolkien as well. Um, uh, there's the fear when you're afraid of something, right? You know, when you'd like think it's going to hurt you, right? And so you're afraid of it. Um, and then there's the fear, which is the fear of all, which has a kind of dread in it, right? It's not, uh, um, you know, it's the, uh, it's the not a tame lion kind of fear, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, Lincoln. It's, uh, precisely what the Old Testament is talking about when it talks about the fear of God. Right? Don't talk about being scared of God. Like, ah! You know, it's not that kind of fear. Um, Lincoln, you know my favorite illustration of this? I, 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 when I did my Bible class back in the old days, I used to talk about this. Uh, you can see this illustrated really clearly in, uh, in Exodus chapter, chapter 20, which is the, the, the scene when the Ten Commandments are being given out. Um, and uh, uh, Moses is told to have the people gather around the mountain, and God is going to descend down the mountain and give them the Ten Commandments. And... Um, the people are afraid of God. They don't show fear of God. They don't obey him. They're going to do their golden calf thing pretty soon. Um, so they're not showing the awe of God, but they're afraid of God. They're like running away. They're like, no, oh, Moses, you go up. We're scared, right? So they're scared of God, but they don't have the fear of God. So we can see like, whereas Moses is not scared of God. He will go up before God and say, hey, can I see your face, by the way? This would be cool. Um, Mo Moses isn't afraid of God, but he shows the fear. Of, you know, he, 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 he does show fear of God in that way. Um, <clears throat> exactly. Um, hey, C. Schwab, your first name is Corey, isn't it? I should call you by your first name because your first name's cool. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the numinous is exactly what that's talking about. And I quite suspect, and Mad Violinist, absolutely, this was an example both Lewis and Tolkien were very fond of, uh, the fear of rat and mole uh, in The Wind and the Willows, um, in The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yes, that's uh, um, Lewis explicitly uses that passage as an illustration of this kind of numinosphere, and uh, 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 um, Tolkien liked that. You know, loved that book as well, and I'm sure uh, would have agreed with that. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, um, 
So I think, yeah, Galandar, that's a great way of thinking of it. Galandar says Frodo's wonder here is similar to that fear. Um, we use wonder as a synonym for joy, uh, even as a way of talking about curiosity, Galandar. We, we, we spent a long time talking about uh, wonder in different senses of the word wonder at Mithmut last year, when wonder was our theme. Um, uh, but Galandar says, suggests that Tolkien is using it in an older sense. Um, yes, he's filled with wonder, and he speaks out of his wonder and a sudden fear at that silence. Because again, notice, um, notice that silence, the silence that he that inspires his fear is the silence of the heavens that seemed to be around him, right? Um, he is aware of all of Arda, right? He is aware of, uh, um, of, uh, um, the, this sort of, the world that is empty of all of the creatures that he knows, right? But is not empty, right? A silence which is not empty, right? But full of something that he can't even understand or relate to, right? That's the awe that he's uh, that he's feeling there. Um, Tony, that's a really interesting way of thinking of it. Tony Mead is suggesting that this is Frodo's first real encounter with the powers. Now remember that hobbits don't think about it so much. Frodo has got some elvish lore through Bilbo, right? So you know he's uh, a little bit better um, acquainted with these things than many of the hobbits are. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's, um, not had that kind of experience before. Um, yeah. And I wonder, Matt, I, I wonder if there is, you know, Matt's suggesting there might also be an element of, of the other kind of fear just of him being afraid. Um, remember that Tom is apparently fallen asleep and Matt is wondering if, uh, uh, he says it's almost as if Frodo's asking because he's afraid he's going to be left floating alone in the heavens when Tom falls asleep. They've been brought into that world, which is a very alien world to their experience, right? That world before the children of the Luvatar awoke. Um, and yeah, they've been, remember this enchantment comes up after Tom nods off, right? Uh, are, they, are, they, are they coming back from this, right? That is interesting, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, um, Tom's answer. Eh, what? said Tom, sitting up and his eyes glinting in the gloom. Uh, Tolkien loves, loves, loves to alliterate with the word gloom. Uh, there are very few times that Tolkien uses the word gloom where he does not use the word glint or gleam uh, in close proximity to the word gloom. Uh, gleamed in the gloom is a phrase that comes up three times in The Hobbit, for instance. Uh, I remember uh, noticing that when I was writing my book. Uh, so anyway, get his eyes glinting in the gloom. Um, eh, what? Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you, alone, yourself, and nameless? But you are young, and I am old. Eldest, that's what I am. Mark my words, friends. Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves and the barrow whites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already, before the seas were bent. 
He knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless, before the Dark Lord came from outside. Now, Mad Violinist, it, there's not quite no poetic meter. I agree with you that his meter is much less forceful here. In particular, what we don't get is the um, uh, old Tom Bombadil, like the, the, the spondaic phrase at the beginning of the line. Um, it doesn't bounce. You're right that the sound of it is different. Um, we, don't get the, uh, we don't get the same bounce in the lines that we normally get when he's skipping and bouncing around and talking, right? Um, and saying, dairy doll, my hearties, right? But the lines are, we still get the same line, line length, right? Um, notice how all of those sentences are the same length and tend to have that same pause in the middle that we have in the middle of his lines. Um, but you are young and I am old. Eldest, that's what I am. Mark my words, my friends. Tom was here before the river in the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. Um, so we do, but but I agree, it's much less sing-songy here than it than his lines often are. They're not exactly sing-songy because Trochi is not nearly as sing-songy as I am, but there it is. Um, okay, so, um, but I, I, I absolutely, Mad Violinist, I'm not disagreeing with you. I do think the sound difference is significant. Um, and here's what I would say about that significance. Um, his tales and his song led them into enchantment, right? He's talking in a similar way to what we saw before, right? He's talking similarly to how he uh, talks, you know, about the, you know, when he's, when he's getting, you know, giving stuff about the elder days and whatnot, right? Um, we um, we got that, and he's talking about the same stuff here, but this is not enchanting, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, oh, good. Yeah, Matt, I agree with you. This the sejure around alone is palpable. Yeah. Um, uh, don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you, alone, yourself, and nameless? Right? Yeah, that's a really important line. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, so what does this mean? Let's talk about the content uh, of this speech, uh, because this is, a, this is a really important one, right? Whenever anybody asks you, who is Tom Bombadil, and let's get, this is the passage, right? This is the passage that you have to deal with. We've gotten some information before, the implication that he was there before the elf sires. This is uh, this is where he gives us the most clear information that he's going to give us, right? Eldest, that's what I am. Now, there are a lot of people who want to fight, you know, have like Team Tom Bombadil and Team Treebeard about who's oldest, right? Uh, because both of them are called eldest. Tom Bombadil calls himself eldest. Uh, Celeborn calls Treebeard eldest, right? Um, there's not a fight, right? They're not. They're not. They're, they're not in competition. The two of them are totally different. Is Tom Bombadil older than Treebeard? Well, yeah, of course he is, right? Um, because the Ents weren't awake before the Elves were awake. Uh, we know that both from the Silmarillion and from Treebeard's own uh, words about this subject, which we'll get to real soon. Um, but so yeah, there's no question. There's no question about who is older, actually. But 
it's a different so, so is one of them wrong you know is is Kelborn wrong you know no no that's not it there's it's a it's a whole different um it's a whole different uh different question um uh <laughs> eric yeah exactly eric points out surely the ants aren't older than the first acorn right that's like a chicken and the egg question right it's a classic the ant and the acorn question exactly um uh so yeah, no. So mad violinist Kelleborn calling Treebeard eldest does not reflect a hole in the war. There's not a contradiction there. Um, it's like it's like talking to the senior boy at a prep school and calling him the oldest, right? Be like, well, the teachers are older than he is, right? Well, yeah, obviously, right? Except the teachers, right? But among the boys. He's the oldest, right? I think that's the same thing with Treebeard here. Um, Kelleborn isn't like overlooking Tom Bombadil and being like, Treebeard, you are the eldest. Oh, I mean, except for Tom Bombadil, obviously, right? Uh, my, my mistake. No, there's no comparison between the two of them. Tom isn't even old in the same sense in which Tom uh, Treebeard is old, right? So there's no, it's not a question of, uh, of exact sort of uh, longevity there. Um, anyway, okay. Um, uh, and yeah, uh, oh, I get to practice saying your name again. Aruaran. I do agree in this context of this sort of, this sort of uh, internet debate about Treebeard and Tom Bombadil, since they're both called eldest. It is really kind of funny when Peter Jackson mushes the two characters together and gives some of Tom Bombadil's lines to Treebeard in the extended edition. Uh, that is, that I, I, I was really laughing at that too, for the same reason. Uh, when I first saw that. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, in, in, enough about Treebeard. We'll get to Treebeard later on. Um, he calls himself eldest. Um, but, so one question. Why does Tom Bombadil use that name for himself? Right? Like why even like eldest? Why is he even comparing ages? Because he was just comparing himself to them. To them rather. Right? You are young and I am old. He says. Right? So uh, and he's saying eldest. That's what I am. So so it's like, don't just think of me as like a little bit older than you are. It's not like I've been around the block a few times. It's like, no, I was here before the block was constructed, right? Uh, so he, he, he says you're young and then I'm old. And then he like expands that, right? Let me try to give you a glimpse of how much older than you I am, right? And now keep in mind that this has been implicit in his talk all the way through. All of his tales have suggested, you know, that, that kind of time-lapse photography deal, right? Everything that he's been saying has suggested that he's been around for one heck of a long time, right? Um, even before they got the vision of the stars, uh, before the rising of the sun and moon. Um, so, mark my words, my friends. Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn, right? The river wasn't here. The trees weren't here. Um, I predate the forest, Remember that in the tales of trees were contained the memories of when the forest was greater and mightier and spread all the way across Eriador, right? That was part of the life of trees that we got. Oh, Tom's memories way back prior to that, right? He remembers when the first acorn was planted, right? So, spoiler, which came first, the tree or the acorn? Acorn, apparently. Um, but... Um, so, yeah, so he, he predates the forest, predates all the rivers, even. 
he made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves and the barrel whites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already before the seas were bent. Uh, now, the elves passing westward, of course, that would refer to the original migration of the elves when they were going to Valinor way back in the first age. Before the seas were bent refers to when the earth, the earth is made round at the time of the fall of Numenor, right? And when Valinor is taken out of the world, connected only by the straight path, uh, uh, which uh, Círdan the shipwright knows how to get to on his ships, um, but no human sailors can get to except a couple by accident in, ex in extraordinary circumstances, uh, like if you're St. Brendan, for instance. But um, anyway, um, notice, for instance, there is no trend here. That is to say, um, there is no, um, this is not in chronological order, right? The, clearly not in chronological order. Um, going backwards, right? Uh, the seas were bent. Seas were bent near the end of the second age, right? The elves passing westward happens early on in the first age, right? Before the big people and saw the little people arriving, the little people didn't arrive till halfway through the third age, right? Um, remember the beginning of Shire reckoning um, when the when the when the little people arrived, presumably in the Shire next door to where Tom's patch is, right? Um, and needless to say, the first raindrop and the first acorn significantly before that. So he's not he's not going he's not going in order, right? Um, that is, he's not recalling things either direction. He's not moving backwards in time. He's not he's bouncing around in time, um, and he's saying all of this. No matter what your frame of reference is, right? Human, Hobbit, Elvish, Treeish, right? All of them. I've been here before all of them. Right? I predate, I am, I, am, I am older than, I am previous to all of those things. He knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless, before the Dark Lord came from outside. Before the Dark Lord came from outside. I, that is clearly, Tungo, you had a great post on this, uh, a long post, I didn't quote it, but um, I, I commend it to you guys. Um, and Tungo, I agree with your conclusion. I think that it's very likely that this is when uh, what in the Silmarillion is described as as uh, Morgoth descending into the world like a mountain in wrath, and that's the, the that's the uh, um, specifically Tungo the pairing between the Dark Lord coming from outside with the Dark Under the Stars when it was fearless, right? After um, uh, it wasn't fearless after Melkor came, and after Melkor came uh, in his uh, in his rage and attempt. Uh, to uh, to make uh, to to uh, to have dominion, um, yeah. Because Tongo, even even when he flees, when, even after Melkor's um, tactical retreat uh, from Tolkas's arrival, uh, still all of his creatures don't leave the world. I don't think at that point. So it's not like and now the world is one hundred percent evil free again. That 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 people go underground, right? Um, but he he he's already started his strongholds and his plots and and his creatures at that point. Um, so uh, I don't think that um, I don't think that the dark under the stars is quite as fearless after um, Melkor's descent upon the world in wrath. That's that's always been my theory that that's what Tom Bombadil is referring to there before the Dark Lord came from outside. 
um, again, because that's when the Dark Under the Stars was only fearless before the war began, right? Before the open conflict between Melkor and the Valar started. And that's when the, the conflict between Melkor and the Valar started. Um, so, um, yeah, anyway, um, so he's, so he's been there since the beginning. It's seems pretty clear that Tom Bombadil has been here on this patch since they descended. He came in with the Ainur. I, I can't understand any other possible way to understand Tom Bombadil and how he, all of these things could be true of him, right? Um, there wasn't anybody else in Middle-earth before the descent of Morgoth in Wrath, right? Before the Dark Lord came from the outside. So he, he seems to have come with the Valar when the Valar descended into Arda, you know, the Valar and the Mire. So what is he? Who is he? Is he a particular Maiar? Is he affiliated with one of the Valar? We have no real evidence about that, right? Um, all I know is that he doesn't seem to have any particular affiliation, right? Uh, he kind of seems to be a free agent. Um, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, back to Frodo's question. And then we'll be done and we'll do our drawing. Um, who are you, Master? Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you alone, yourself, and nameless? Right? Frodo is trying to get, like, Frodo is essentially asking, are you a god? Right? Not god, capital G, right? Not are you a Luvatar, but are you a god? Are you one of the Valar? Right? Are you a god? He's like, he just realized. Remember the business about like coming to a cottage and being greeted by a fair young elf queen, right? Uh, he's now sort of having an experience almost like that again. Like, whoa, hang on. I knew this guy was weird. I suspected he was powerful. But let's face it. There's lots of powerful people running around, like wizards and elves and all manner of things that I don't really understand, right? And so when I asked Goldberry, who is he? I was asking that, right? Is he a great lore master? Is he an ancient wizard who's just kind of loopy? Is he, you know, some kind of weird stunted elf, right? You know, what? what's up with him? Um, and um, <laughs> both Druid's Fire and Stephanie were quoting, if someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Uh, good call, good call. Um, anyway, I, I, <laughs> so... Um, this is so when that's what he was asking the first time now i th again i would one possible paraphrase uh for frodo's question would be are you a god right um and his answer is philosophical right um it just uh, arden crown as you were suggesting there on twitter a minute ago um don't you know my name yet that's the only answer at first it might sound a little bit evasive right like a cunning way of saying, I'm not going to tell you, right? Um, I am, you know, me. I am Tom Bombadil. That's the only answer, right? Can you tell me who you are without your name? But you can't? Nope. So I'm not going to tell you who I am, right? Again, it could sound like an evasive kind of trick, but I don't think so, right? I think he is saying, um, I think he's saying, Who are you alone, yourself, and nameless? Um, 
He's pointing out that the answering of the question, who are you, is a much harder and deeper question than Frodo is thinking that he's asking, right? Um, <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? Not exactly like that, Valori. Exactly. Um, uh, the only answer that can be given to that question is his name, right? The answer to who are you, the only real answer is Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo, right? The answer that he's giving all the time in his song. Notice there's another major difference between this question and the last time Frodo asked the question, right? Um, well, two differences. First, he apologizes for it the first time, if my asking does not seem foolish, right? And the second is that he calls him master. Who are you, master? Remember, that was the answer the first time. Tom Bombadil is master, Goldberry says. So Frodo's like, got it, right? I'm getting that. I'm totally now understanding better the significance of that whole master thing, now that I'm kind of suspecting that you're a god. So, okay. Um, so he he sort of gives him that, right? Um, you are... Uh, um, you are your master. Um, but uh, can, I get, can I get a little more information? <laughs> like, who are you? Who are you exactly? Um, you know, do you like fit in the pantheon? Is this a... Um, yeah, Matthew, I also imagine Frodo almost whispering this question. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. You know, again, the fear and the wonder uh, uh, that is the context of this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Matt, again, is recalling that reference to the silence of the heavens that's all around him, right? Matt says he's, the question sounds like he's asking, uh, he sounds like he is asking the person, you know, the silence of the heavens, right? That's, yeah, yeah. Um, um, tell me who are you, alone yourself and nameless. Um and again, I don't think that this is, I don't think it's evasion. Um, I think it's, uh, uh, but I think it's important that Tom Bombadil does bring it back to him. Tom acknowledges that he's on a different level, right? When he calls himself eldest, when he describes how long he's been there, he's setting himself apart. And prior to everybody, hobbits, humans, elves, trees, right? But his answer to the question connects him with Frodo, right? Who am I? That's an unanswerable question. But it's not an unanswerable question because I'm an ineffable being, right? Or rather, I am an, ineff an, an ineffable being. But so are you, right? You also are ineffable, my friend. Um, who are you? Alone yourself and nameless, right? Um, there is as great a mystery there. And I think that just as Goldberry doesn't answer the question, but then goes on to kind of try to convey something that helps them understand um, 
what they're re- the you know to, to kind of tries to give him in a sense to lead him to the information that he's truly seeking. I think that Tom Bombadil is doing the same, right? Um, if Frodo's question can be paraphrased, "Are you a god?" Tom Bombadil's answer can be paraphrased, "Yes, <laughs> I am," right? Um, but he doesn't give him any more than that. He doesn't explain anything more than that. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Harnuth, I agree that it must have been important to Tolkien uh, who Tom Bombadil was because he chose to have his lead character ask the question and ask it twice, Harnuth, I would add. Um, I, I agree. But I think it's equally important that having had his lead character ask it twice, he gets a straight answer neither time, right? Um, and that both times, gold, first Goldberry and then Tom, point to the impossibility of answering that question, really. Not just for Tom Bombadil, but for anybody, right? Who's Frodo? Um, he's Frodo of the Shire. We'll take away that answer. Who is he? What is he? Um, yeah, all created beings, Tungo, are just as they are. I agree. Remember back to Goldberry's answer. You know, all the living things are, are you know, are, you know, they uh, uh, have charge of themselves, right? Uh, Tom isn't the boss of any of them. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm uh, threatening to run later than usual here tonight, so I'm going to stop there. Um, one last, uh, uh, one last account from. Uh, again, I just love to to uh, to share these. This is from Catherine. Another email I got. As, as a longtime Tolkien fan, I've always been looking for lectures and discussions about Tolkien on an academic level. By the way, Catherine, it is exactly for people like you. I started my podcast 10 years ago um, because I was thinking, you know, when I, like back in the old days, like when I was sitting there in my room by myself reading Tolkien with nobody to talk about Tolkien with before I went to college uh, or after I went to college to some extent, um, or that is after I graduated from college, um, I also was always looking for lectures and discussions, and it's why I sort of started this whole thing, because I love that so much. When I finally found Mythgard by chance, if chance you call it, it was like finding treasure, and even treasure without a dragon hoarding it. That's a, that's a great motto, yes. Uh, treasure without without the dragon. Um, so thanks a lot for all the wonderful classes I can listen to for free whenever I have the time. I'm looking forward to many more episodes of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It's a good thing. Um, by the way, we should have an over-under, shouldn't we? Uh, sh- sh- shouldn't there be a pool as to like how many episodes we're actually going to have before we finish the book? Um, uh, many more episodes of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, the history of Middle-earth, the Film Film Project, and all the other fascinating topics we will surely come up with. Um, excellent. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Catherine. Uh, it is awesome. I love to hear about uh, people who uh, come across uh, these things by accident. So, um it's uh, again. It's why I, I threw those things out there, and I'm really uh, I'm really delighted to hear about um, to hear about you guys uh, 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 to hear when you guys uh, stumble across it. Um, <laughs> seeing all the improbably high numbers you guys are guessing. Um, all right, <laughs> the third millennial will arrive before this show ends. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, Excellent. Okay. Um.
<laughs> David Atley predicts the class will fall victim to Zeno's paradox. Uh, uh, is that the am I remembering correctly, David? Is that the one where like the rocket's halfway to the stone and then halfway and halfway and never hits the tree? Am I remembering then that Zeno's paradox? Um, because if so, you may be right. That may actually be the mathematical model uh, for the uh, for the course. Um, but uh, anyway, cool. Um, okay, I, I did remember it correctly. That's good. Um, all right, so let's do our drawing. Excellent. Let me uh, let me let me get out. It's it's time for our drawing. I think I see that several of you uh, made donations during class tonight. Thank you so much. That is that is just wonderful uh, to see. Um, we had a bunch. I don't have time to do math in my head right now, but uh, it looks like almost a thousand dollars given during the course of class today. That's uh, that's really wonderful. Let me uh, let me go to uh, my sheet here. There we are. Okay. Um, all right. Excellent. So I'm going to roll. Got my D20. I'm all set. Um, so first, the, uh, the fourth prize for a book of your choice with customized book plate goes to Justin Ashburn, who sent the email that I quoted the first time. Justin, congratulations. So if you, when you win, you've got to tell me. Um, uh, you've got to tell me, uh, you, you, you need to send an email. You can send an email back to, to donate at signumu.org, uh, and let us know what book you want. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll get that set for you. Um, okay. Next one. Third prize goes to, um, Megan Lozen. Megan Lozen. I don't know if Megan is here, uh, but same thing. We can, I can. We can, we'll send you an email as well if you're here. You can anticipate us uh, and send that. Very good. Congratulations, Megan. Now this is the second. This is for this is the double book, right? You get two choices of books. Okay. And it is Emily Norwood. Emily Norwood is the winner of the second prize. So two books of your choice: Tolkien book, Mythgard Academy book. Uh, uh, let me know. And the grand prize. One book with special customized book plate and a, uh, uh, a, a, an a access, to, uh, an archive access to the Signum University course of your choice of all the courses we've offered in the history of Signum University goes to... Okay, let's see. And it's... Gilgonthir. Gilgonthir, congratulations. You win. I know I saw you were here earlier on. Very good. Woohoo. Excellent. Okay. Um, Woohoo. So again, send us an email. Donate at signumu.org. Uh, what book would you like? Look through our courses. Tell us what course you'd like access to. Uh, and uh, and that'll be really cool. Now, don't forget, we're going to have lots more drawings. We're going to be giving away lots of things and stuff throughout the webathon uh, on Saturday. So lots of chances for more uh, prizes then. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations, not only today, but through the last couple weeks and, 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 and through the year. If you're listening to this asynchronously, don't worry, there's still time. Uh, this, of course, the, our, our fundraising campaign is is designed to, you know, it comes in the fall um, because, you know, this is to sort of, help to pave the way for our annual fund. We, you know, when the, when the, when courses begin in the fall, you know, when it comes around to Hobbit day, 
uh, it's time for us to be thinking about making sure we, you know, we have the uh, the financial wherewithal to to go through, you know, to be confident in our entire planned year. Uh, our fiscal year officially ends at the end of July, um, so that the annual fund runs until then, and we get we get donations throughout the year, and those are very much appreciated. So don't think that just because you're listening to this after the campaign is over uh, means that it's too late uh, to uh, uh, to donate. So. Thanks, everybody. I hope you'll join me on Saturday. Saturday's going to be huge fun. We're going to talk. We're going to do the adventures of Tom Bombadil. So another whole session on Tom Bombadil, where you get to see all the early and late stuff, and that'll be really cool. I'm going to be doing uh, my dis uh, discussion of Star Trek, which I've never done before, and I'm going to be doing a special Lotro stream, and we'll have special features and discussions. With we're going to talk about this class. We're going to talk about Mythgard Academy. We're going to talk about our graduate program. We're going to talk about the Signum Academy, which is a new thing. Um, you will uh, you will get to see those of you who were at our webathon last year may remember uh, that I did a really fun Q and A session uh, with a couple middle school girls uh, who are really really well read in Tolkien and really smart and ask awesome questions. I had so much fun uh, talking to Maggie and Sophie um, last year that I invited them back again and we're going to talk again this year. So uh, uh, so again, lots of really really fun segments we're going to be doing throughout the day plus. Uh, lots of really cool stuff. I'm going to be, you know, talking a lot about what are what are our plans? Where are we going? What are we doing? Uh, you know, our theme in this uh, campaign is growing into the future, and we really, you know, Signum is really, you know, this this past year and this year to come are really important transitional moments uh, in the history of Signum University, and we're, we're 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 growing into new things, and we have big plans for new stuff. Um, so. Um, uh, so I totally, uh, you know, I, I encourage you to come. There's, there's lots uh, that I'm going to be uh, showing and explaining and, uh, and all that. So, um, okay. Uh, so that's what's, uh, that's what's going to happen. Uh, and don't forget for the webathon, you can uh, just, just show up at the Twitch channel uh, and join us on Discord here too, so that I, I can make sure to enable you to join in the discussion in real time uh, from an audio standpoint uh, there as well. Um, awesome. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Oh, JJ, you want to turn the uh, turn turn into a class plus a lab? What do you want, like a weekly discussion section for exploring the Lord of the Rings? Is that your suggestion, JJ? You guys would like to have a discussion section? Is that is that the idea? You know, I'd thought about that about that possibility whether we could make something like that happen. I'm interested to hear you suggest that. That's been something that's been kind of rolling around in my head too, and I was wondering, you know, if people were uh, people were would be interested in that kind of thing. Anyway, cool. But no, Tarlaniel, no, no lab reports would be required. I promise. Uh, in conjunction with this, if we were to do such a thing, um, but uh, cool, cool. Anyway, so all right, um, let's um, um, let's. It's field trip time, so I'm going to say goodbye. Thanks to everybody who's been watching on Twitter. Uh, as usual, I'm going to say uh, goodbye to you guys. Feel free to join us over at Twitch.tv/signumu. And it's time for our field trip. Thanks, everybody. Okay, there we go. All right. And now, those of you who are still with us here, okay. We are just about ready to go. Okay, so. Where are we going today? We are going to head to, um, we're going to head north, but not quite so far north. 
Uh, we're going to go to uh, the North Downs today. Remember before when we were uh, doing Even Dim, we went across the border and went over into Forakel? Um, I want to do that again. I want to start at Forakel, but then I want to I want to spread. We've, so we visited a couple places in the North Downs already, but I want to be kind of looking at the big picture of the North Downs, especially the uh, eastern side of the North Downs um, in the context of the larger uh, the, we kind of we looked at a couple sites, but we haven't done a sort of overview uh, of the North Downs, and that's what I want to do today. Um, so let's uh, yeah, we'll get out to Arid Lewin. I know we've kind of skipped Arid Lewin. We you know we kind of we went we did the Shire and Even Dim and went up to Forakel, and now we're going you know so we've kind of missed Arid Lewin. We'll come back to Arid Lewin. Um, we'll totally do. we did do uh, uh, we did do uh, um, uh, Thorin's Gate. Remember uh, one day, but um, we'll. Uh, We'll head back. Uh, we'll head back over there. Um, okay. So in the meantime, so my plan is my cunning plan, if I can pull it off, is uh, I want to let's go out to the stable master. Uh, I'm gonna. My goal will be to take a swift travel to um, uh, to Tinadir and then ride across even dim through Forakel and out that way because I'd like to approach from the east uh, if possible. Uh, for the sake of historical context, as we're thinking about it in terms of Arnor. Um, if you guys want to, if there are some people who are low level, who are, uh, would be easier just for you to ride straight, what you could do is just head up the Greenway and meet me, um, uh, meet me, what's the name of that? I forget the name of that. Uh, oh, I mean Fornos, not Forakel. Yeah, sorry. Thank you, Druid's Fire. If I said Forakel, I was mistaken. I meant Forakel. Um, yeah, I do that a lot too. <laughs> sorry. So yeah, okay. So if you if you go north, um, uh, you can just meet me. What's the um, uh, Monica? What's the name of that uh, that tower by Fornost? The one the tower at the junction of the. Ah, oh, shoot! Hang on a second. Yeah, no, no. Uh, hang on. No. Let's see. North Downs. This one. Um, Amon Rice. I'm on Rife. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the little like um, Dunedain outpost yeah. there. Oh, that was that was my bad. I thought you meant the campfire where Colbert the Man was. Oh yeah, well there's that too. We could meet there, I suppose. But uh, yeah. I was thinking of no, the... no. Amonrith is a stable destination. It's probably the best bet. Yeah, exactly. So um, if you so anyone who wants to just ride straight up the Greenway could meet us there. I'm gonna try to go slightly more roundabout route. So that's what we're gonna do. Heading up, as always, out through the lower hall. So it sounds like you got a pretty fun lineup for Saturday. I'm excited. Oh yeah, it's going to be really cool. I'm, I'm. Uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a lot of. I know for me, there's going to be a lot of, uh, lot of nostalgia on Saturday because you know we're going to be looking <laughs> at, uh, you know, a lot, just kind of doing a, doing a, a you know, fairly big review of all the cool signum things and talking about what's coming up as well as you know doing fun things so there's going to be there's going to be there's going to be uh trivia contests and i have to say of course you know normally when i'm doing tolkien trivia i uh, um you know i try not to make the questions too obscure <laughs> however however i will say oh look at that i do have timid open sweet um uh, however, I'm going to have a subsection 
of the tri- of the Tolkien trivia section, which is going to be uh, exploring the Lord of the Ring- Rings themed. And oh. <laughs> I am going to ask super hard questions about chapters one through seven of the Fellowship of the Ring because nobody in this class has any excuse for not knowing uh, 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 really, really close. So uh, we're talking like super obscure things. Uh, oh, man. It's going to be cool. So <laughs> so, so practice, you, you know, it, it'll, it'll, it'll practice your, your close reading and your, uh, uh, and your recall there. And supplemental as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Throw, throw in a Kalevala question for me. <laughs> well, so we're we're doing so the the, the two different um, uh, the two different we're doing two sessions of trivia contests. The one will be Tolkien trivia, and it won't okay. it won't all be uh, uh, chapters one through seven, but there will be definitely a one through seven <laughs> subsection. Um, and then the other one is going to be uh, from the Mythgard Academy, so it'll be it'll be uh, trivia on the other books. That we've st- the non-Tolkien books that we've studied in the Mythgard Academy. So, all right, okay. I think it's every- if everybody who's coming through Tinadir is uh, is here. That's wow, Druid's Fire. That's a really cool uh, comparison you've got going on there. That that uh, that's pretty awesome. I like the black thing too. Is this a is this like a Nazgul? This is the this is the Ash Plains. Uh, Steed of the Ash Plains and the armor of the Ash oh. Plains that you get with the Mordor expansion. Oh, I see. Right. Cool. It is a very ominous looking steed right there. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a nobody mess with me steed. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Oh, is that a straggler? Or yeah, I, I was know. just wondering about that. Yeah. Well, just, uh, just a heads up, everything here is purple for me, so... <laughs> Aha, uh-huh. okay. I'm just going to keep writing. Right. But we do this thing on this many servers. I'm, I'm only going to be so prepared in some cases. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I hear that. Okay, so, um, yeah, so those of you who are on Warsteeds, you should uh, feel free to eliminate any a- enemies that are near to the road. Oh, they, you can't fire from Warsteeds here. Oh, you can't? No, you have to oh, be in a I didn't even area. know that. Okay. So I've, I've been doing Warsteed so little that I've never even tried that. I, it's Warsteed something where it's like you got to build yourself up. It's like teaching yourself to drive stick. <laughs> I mean, it, it really, it, well, for, it, well, more like trying to teach yourself how to drive a giant semi-truck mm-hmm. that's also a manual because there's that turning radius you have to get used right, to. Right, right, exactly, but, yeah. But once, you, once you've, like, really, you know, got got your hours in just practicing it, it's yeah. sort of second nature after that. The only thing I found out is different classes have different buttons. Like, there was a brake feature on the Hunter yeah. course that I just assumed was standard, and now I found out that all the other classes don't have that feature. Oh, really? <laughs> so yeah. So now I'm sitting here going, stop, stop, how do I stop? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I've I've finally, you know, now that you know Wigand is up to Helm's Deep, and I've got one of my other alts doing, uh, uh, sort of slowly doing uh, the the uh, um, completionist Rohan. I finally am like not wholly incompetent in my war steeds anymore, and so I'm starting to get the hang of it. Um, but um, yeah, oh, so uh, the question. That you guys, uh, a question from someone there on the Discord channel. How do you pronounce Mickle Delving? It's definitely pronounced Mickle. Uh, now, it's an interesting word because, of course, that word just means much or great. 
from Anglo-Saxon and from uh, from Middle English, um, and actually it was it would have been pronounced in Anglo-Saxon. It would have been Mitchell actually with a soft C, um, but uh, the word as it kind of came down into a, you know into a place name like that. Um, uh, was was definitely kind of brought in as uh, uh, Mickle is how it came into modern uh, pronunciation. So uh, we got some baddies here. Yeah. Oh, uh, right by the by the gates there. Yeah. Yeah. True. Okay. Well, let me pause here while a couple of people uh, kill the guardians so that uh, the low people can pass through. Um, so remember, we've just been passing through the old kingdom of Arnor, and this is really this is really the boundary. You know where we can see. Um, not only, of course, literally the boundary, and we looked at this before when we came through Fornos the first time, the ruins of this very thick uh, wall and gate here, which was the gate, and I think it's still labeled, yeah, the Evenden Gate, right. Um, so over, you know, to the to the west of here, you know, in Evendim, what we're getting is the remnant of the sort of pleasure palaces and, uh, you know, estates, and to some extent fortresses, um, but much less fortress and more palace. Um, and that's where you can see the peaceful kingdom of old Arnor. And when we cross the line over into the North Downs, we are still in Arnor. So if we look at the map, at the big map, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the Eriador map. Uh, you can see that Arnor extended in the old days all the way from you know, the, the, the old kingdom of Arnor, from, from, from Evendim, basically over there in the Arid Luin, uh, was of course where, where the elves uh, were and the dwarf halls were over there too. Um, so even dim the Shire, uh, Breland, not much South of Breland, um, but basically Breland, the lone lands and, uh, you know, up, even up by the Etten Moors, the North downs out by the troll shaws, um, you know, along in that direction, that was all the kingdom of Arnor. It stopped. So it stopped short of Forakel. When we went up to Forakel past, Os- uh, Os- no, I almost said Oskaruth, um, Osferod, um, we saw that boundary. We saw that 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 gate there, also up in the north, which was clearly the northern end, northern edge um, of Arnor. So that whole region was the kingdom of Arnor. Um, the shift that we're making is is really, in a sense, a kind of shift forward in time. Because although, so when we cross this boundary, there is a sense in which we're moving forward in time as far as the history of the Dunedain are concerned, because. Um, Although this area was under the uh, the sway of the kingdom of, of the old kingdom of Arnor, what remains here, the ruins that we see here, uh, are all very different uh, mm-hmm. from the ruins that we see in Evendim, because they weren't pleasure palaces anymore. Um, the remnants here, I mean, if we just kind of glance over in this direction, there are lots of bad guys I know over here. Um, mm-hmm. But if we glance up here where there are lots of white factories and uh, purple fire and spooky things, um, as you can see, the whole, the whole structure is different. We get these, uh, these blocks of stone, which are, which are plain, there's much less, look how much less attention, even apart from like, you know, the walking dead and those kinds of things, which tend to make the ruins unsightly, even apart from that, and even apart from the fact that it's ruins, this building was never as beautiful as the as the buildings over in Evendim, right? It was not. Yeah, yeah. It was not designed for show. This was just, this was this was a fortification sitting on top of this hill. Um, it was not designed um, as a as a 
it was not designed to be attractive. It was designed to be strong. And it's just, you know, set stones. And we do get columns and arches and, uh, you know, some some kind of interesting things. But this is the kind of ruin that you get out here in this direction. Um, and and it's interesting because, of course, you know, one might think, right, like we, we tend to think we modern people, right, mm-hmm. tend to automatically think um, the the trend if we see one place with like really crude ruins and another place with like much more ornate ruins the assumption that we might tend to make is that the one with the crude ruins is the earlier and primitive one and the one with the more ornate and beautiful ruins you know comes later and is the more sophisticated society but not necessarily look at greece and rome right exactly we do get some examples like that certainly um but uh, but you know that, that, that there's that kind of general trend of 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 thought and assumption. But of course, it's very different in Middle Earth. Um, this stuff is the newer stuff. This is the more recent uh, the more recent ruins, the more recent buildings, um, because this is the stuff that is really left over from the Arnorian civil wars. Um, Fornost becomes the capital of the Northern Kingdom after the Northern Kingdom splits up. Uh, so yeah, here we're coming up to, I want to get back to the greenway here. Um, so, all right, okay, here's the intersection. I love that there's a signpost here. (laughs) Might have wood, no less. Exactly. Like who erected this signpost exactly? I mean, it looks relatively recent, doesn't it? This doesn't look like an old Arnorian signpost by any stretch. No. Uh, so, yeah. it's uh, Greenway Department of Transportation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, somebody. I guess Minchum the Rangers, you know, doesn't spend all of his time sitting by the fire. He must also erect signposts. Maybe it's just part, <laughs> of, the, part of the public service projects that Rangers do, you know. Could be. Maybe some... Maybe some teenage ranger did it as like an Eagle Scout project or something. Well, I can't see the Witch King erecting it. No, no. See, exactly. Or at least <laughs> if he did, the, the finger points posts would point in the wrong direction. You know. Um, but um, I'd turn back if I were you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. This is, a, this is one section I actually did some research on. I wrote the write-up for uh, the Kingdom of Angmar and how it started. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, uh, Brandon, you're absolutely right. Brandon was just pointing out that you know when you look at the map, you can see how vulnerable Evendim was to attack from 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 Angmar. You know, and that uh, and that Fornost is really much more um, much more defensible. It absolutely is. Um, uh, Evendim is wide open. Evendim is not neither the individual buildings nor like the kingdom as a whole is is defensible. It was clearly not built for defense. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and again, I love the fact that the design within the game really does seem to capture, I think, uh, and really communicate the spirit of the history of Arno. Right? You don't even need to have read the, you don't need to have read the appendices to get a sense of how this went. Right? Um, even Dim is old, but it's established in time of peace. If this is the beautiful city by the lake, um, and of course, when you think back to who built it, you know, when you think back to Elendil and the situation in which he built it. You know, it was begun. You know, his his realm up here began when he thought that the kingdom of Sauron was over. He thought that 
you know, like Numenor had sunk and that was bad news. Everyone was still pretty sad about that. But there was a there was a silver lining, right? The silver lining to the downfall of Numenor was that at least Sauron went down with it. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's great. Except, of course, that didn't pan out. Um, so <laughs> he, having arrived here, having survived Numenor and establishing his new kingdom, um, you know, the, the, the entire layout of Evendim, you know, of, of, of the ruins and everything you can see, suggest that this was established by a people who really thought they had come to the end of, uh, of their troubles. And, of course, even when Elendil perishes in the, la- the, the War of the Last Alliance and, you know, Isildur, his son, doesn't come home either, that, too, is, um, you know, like, sort of a bad thing, right? That seems like it's... Uh, uh, but but that also has a silver lining, right? <laughs> Which is well, at least now now Sauron is totally gone, right? Now we, you know we we thought he was done before. Time. Yeah, we turn out turn out to be wrong about that, but this time for sure Sauron is done. Um, uh, and of course that that seemed kind of truer for longer. But of course the Witch King himself is you know as the servant of Sauron becomes sort of the problem. So yeah, Brandon, it really is exposed. Whereas again, you look at just the North Downs map, right? And you can see Fornost. Fornost is defensible, right? Uh, Fornost is not only built as we can see it even from this distance if you have ultra-high graphics. Um, uh, it's, uh, you can see how, 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 how well defended it is, right? How uh, it's set back up against these hills. Um, you know, you have this, you know, we, we were looking before at the sort of concentric defenses uh, moving in there to it. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> JJ's asking if I'm implying that the end of the Lord of the Rings is going to turn out to be a false victory, too. Um, well, only if you think that evil has been banished from the world entirely, right? If uh, if uh, if you come to the end of the Third Age and think that uh, now, finally, we've solved the evil problem and we can all relax, you're probably going to end up being disappointed again. Uh, but I, at least I, I, I do think the Sauron problem has been more or less permanently dealt with uh, by yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the book point. even proved itself, and, you know, spoiler alert, I mean, that, that there were still problems, there were still yeah. evil to deal with even after Sauron. Absolutely. So. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, all right. So, th- so you can see why after, and it's not even that long after, right? It's only, well, it's a few generations, right? When we were looking at the tombs and everything, we get, what, eight kings in Arnor before we get the divide, before we get the split. Are, are uh, the Dunedain kings? Or like of the Dunedain kings, kings that yeah. that makes it even longer. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Of the of the, uh, the the kings in Enuminous, yeah. right? Before they shift over here to Fornost. And um, uh, and so this is, this is the beginning of a new era, and it's when the Civil War begins. Now, keep in mind also, when we were looking around in Eventim, one of the things that we were seeing was all, the, you know, one of the things that, that, that the Lotro design captures over there in Eventim is the sort of the rival houses, right? The different great families, you know, with their palatial estates and competing with each other and some some sense of, like, there's, they're, they're similar, but there seems like there might be some one-upsmanship, right, between the different. Like Beverly Hills. Exactly. There is a there is a kind you know and and there's the you know you can you can see you know there's like the one family that has its uh, that has its 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 estate you know halfway up the hill and the other one that's way up at the top of the hill looking over the lake right and you, keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> exactly. You do get this sense of uh, of you know this uh, sort of increasing decadence of the 
of the great families um, in uh, in over there in Evendim. And that's, of course, ultimately what dissolves into the civil war when you have three different uh, families that claim the throne, that claim to be, um, you know, the rightful rulers of the kingdom of Arnor. Um, and that's when you get the split between Arthurang, Cardolan, and Rudaur. Um, so now looking back at the map, and I know we've talked about this in different uh, contexts, but it's worth uh, looking at again. So the split, basically, Arthodine gets the majority of the land. Uh, Bree and the Lone Lands are really at sort of the junction of the, of the kingdoms. Um, most of the North Downs, um, and, you know, because Fornost is the capital of Arthodine, um, and, you know, down through into Bree land, um, uh, and, uh, and over, you know, Weathertop is right at the, sort of where the three kingdoms meet, essentially. Cardolan was south. Car Cardolan was from Breland and a little bit south uh, of there. It was the, the smallest, basically, in area of the three. And then Rudaur was off in the in the western part, um, up here by the Etten Moors, up here closest to Angmar. And that becomes sort of the problem uh, as they begin to be influenced by Angmar. Um, so, uh, um, so here in the North Downs, we are in the um, we are in the realm of uh, uh, we are in the realm of Arthodyne still, um, and we can begin to see the um, um, we can begin to see the the, um, the the signs of that when we look at ruins and stuff around here. Okay, you hear the music that's playing right now? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um. That music always really gets to me. I, it has to be a reference. That is exactly the same music in exactly the same tone as was playing in Lord British's castle in uh, uh, in um, uh, ah blanking the game um, with the Avatar and Lord British and oh my goodness Ultima. Thank you, Okendor. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I that's, don't know much that's about the, that. That's the Ultima music that oh, plays okay. in Lord British's castle. It is exactly. It is not just like it. It is exactly the music <laughs> that plays in Lord British's castle in Ultima. I mean, um, I'm, I'm sold on the name already, Lord British. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and um, yeah. So I, I, uh, I, I'm always. It plays a lot in Esteldine. So whenever I'm in Esteldine, I'm always like, blah, it, rule Britannia. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, which is of course the music that's being that's being that's being played. All right. Anyway, so let's uh, let's let's go look at some ruins and ride across the North Downs here. Now, where I'm not going is south. I'm not going down to um, uh, towards Bree. I want to do that on a different time when we do sort of the the southern border of the North Downs. Uh, oh, and... I got kicked off again. Go ahead without me. I'll catch oh, up. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're going to stick to the main roads mostly. Well, you'll be able to hear where I'm going. Yeah. Uh, as I no, described it. It was good for hours. I wonder why I did it now. Oh, no. Uh, you just lost your link? Yeah. No, just kicked me off. Electric light kicked me off. Oh, dear. I had this trouble all through girls this weekend. So. Uh, I see. Yeah. I see. Bruinier, you are right. Ultima 4 was totally awesome. Uh, that was a great game. I really liked Ultima 5, too. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay. 
so here we come to another set of ruins on the top of this hill. I can't remember if we see any marks here. So this was clearly a watchtower, just from its location, right here in Amon Rife. You can immediately see the star here. So you can see the star of Numenor, and that symbol at the top of the arch there, which looks vaguely like a pitchfork, um, which I have always understood to be the scepter of Anuminus. Um, you can see that a lot in uh, Evendim and Anuminus itself. Um, so from that, I, from these marks, from the star and the scepter, I take this to be um, a, uh, the, this was an outpost of Arthodyne. You can see the stars here again set into the floor, as is very frequently notable in Dunedine ruins in this general area. So, okay, so this is this is clearly a watchtower, possibly a signal tower. You can see how they could easily communicate by lights and things with uh, with Fornost, uh, and how they look around. Of course, the North Downs are downs, right? So we have these these hills. Um, I will admit, until I read Watership Down, I didn't know what a down was, um, uh, because we don't really use that word in America to describe uh, any of our uh, geographical features. Um, so, um, uh, but these these kinds of really steep hills that are flat on top uh, are downs. They're often can be sort of low and sloping on one side, but are often very steep. Uh, not necessarily precipitous, not like cliffs necessarily, um, but uh, but but very steep. So these um, this kind of landscape that we're seeing right here is very typical of uh, of a down area where you have uh, this sort of flat valley and then this sudden this sudden rise to a um, a flatter land, which is just on a higher elevation right up above it. Um, the North Downs, of course, is a phrase that's used in the appendices to describe this area up here by Fornost. So, of course, as usual, they're taking the name uh, straight from the books. We have another little fortress over here. And again, you can see this is a very boring ruin across the way over there, right? Um, just a colonnade. And while the fact that there's such a big colonnade is a little bit interesting, actually. Um, uh, but down here on the lower side, we have uh, we have walls. Um, now, you're right, Druid's Fire, we do get Churchill Downs, where the Kentucky Derby is run. So it's not that we don't have anything that's called a down in America. But I mean, I've never, and maybe it's just a part of America that I've lived in, but I've never in America come across a place where there is a hill that is called a down. You know, like Usually when we have a hill with a flat top, we use the Spanish word mesa. Yeah, you know, right, in the Southwest, you get a lot of mesas. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, and, and we just, I don't know, in... New England, we just call them hills. <laughs> we don't really even call them anything. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So uh, um, I was never, uh, I was never quite, uh, quite sure uh, what a down was. As I said uh, at first, I certainly read the word, read the name North Downs before I had any idea what that actually was describing. Um, okay, so having made it to Amon Rife, it's getting really late. So I should probably stop having like talked for a really long time about the background and history, but that's okay because that's a perfect setup for we will continue to explore the North Downs. We're still going to be at least one more week before we get anywhere close to the Barrow Downs. So we will go back to the Barrow Downs, which are of course a different set of downs um, when we um, 
uh, when we get there in the book. But as I say, we're still we're still we're still a good week away uh, from the Barrow Downs. I do think, by the way, fearless prediction: we're going to finish chapter seven next week. That's right. I totally predict we're going to finish chapter <laughs> seven in one more week. Um, but anyway, so uh, thanks. So um, so um, we'll stop here for tonight. We'll pick up uh, our field trip uh, right here on at uh, Emmon Rice again next time, and uh, uh, and that'll be really good. So thanks everybody for joining me. Um, uh, if you can join me tomorrow at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern time uh, for the Treason of Isengard, uh, we're getting close. We're getting towards the end of the Treason of Isengard um, as we're looking at the first trips into Mordor and stuff. So I hope that you can uh, that you can join me there, and uh, we will. And then, of course, don't forget Webathon on Saturday all afternoon and evening. It's going to be really fun. So. Uh, thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you guys sooner or later. Thanks a lot. All right. Good night. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.